The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. If the best minds in the world had set out to find us the worst possible location in the world to fight this damnable war, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson once said, the unanimous choice would have been Korea. And he wasn't wrong. The fighting that occurred during the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 until 1953, the war itself is technically still ongoing, would be characterized by many things. Uncompromising terrain, lack of space for a land invasion, freezing winters, humid, muggy summers, frostbite, and disease. And an enemy so ruthless that some of their deeds are better suited for a true crime episode than a military history one. And both sides could say that of the enemy. It wasn't just the communist aggressors that were massacring civilians and committing war atrocities. At the end of the Second World War, Korea, which had formerly long been occupied by the Japanese Empire, was divided somewhat arbitrarily along the 38th parallel effectively chopping it up into today's North and South Korea. In the wake of World War II, both the United States and the Soviet Union came up with what they thought to be a great plan for figuring out the ideal path to Korean self-determination. One would take one portion of the peninsula, one would take the other, and then they would occupy each and help figure out how to create a government and a constitution and all those good things with the opposite side overseeing it. Does that sound like a great plan when each side could not be more ideologically opposed to the other? It was not a great plan. It wasn't a good plan. It was doomed from the start. The Soviet Union quickly used their influence to convince North Korea that communism was the way, the only way that all Koreans must be communists. The Korean People's Army, the KPA, was rapidly established in North Korea, born from communist uh, guerrillas who had previously served with the Chinese People's Liberation Army and were also advised by Soviet personnel. By mid-1950, the KPA was made up of 10 infantry divisions plus other units, totaling some 223,000 men. And most of this militarization was done covertly. Before all the modern satellite surveillance and other means of being able to figure out what your enemies are up to, it was easier to amass an army that your enemies would not know about until it was too late. Or nearly too late. As the U.S. floundered amid South Korean uprisings and U.N. negotiations, North Korea militarized. And soon, their eye would be on reunifying the Korean peninsula and claiming it all for communism. And on June 25th, 1950, the KPA invaded South Korea, rapidly claimed the capital city of Seoul, and quickly advanced southwards, trapping South Korean and American troops in a small perimeter around the port of Pusan. 
the opening shots fired in the Cold War. Although caught off guard and unprepared, the U.S. wasn't going to let the North Koreans keep what they had taken. Appealing to the U.N., many countries sent in troops to support the South, the U.S., Great Britain, Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand, South Africa, and more, but mostly the U.S. The U.S. would send just under 1.8 million military personnel overall to serve in some capacity in the Korean War. The U.K. sent in the second most personnel with roughly 60,000, Canada third with 27,000, and the numbers drop off quite a bit from there. Who would win, the communists or the capitalists, the North Koreans or the South Koreans? Spoiler alert, it wouldn't be that simple. Life, and thus history, rarely is. But it would be fascinating and horrifically bloody. Today, we get curious about the so-called Forgotten War, including what preceded it with the Japanese occupation of Korea and how the peninsula was divided into northern and southern halves. We get into the horrors of POW camps and the negotiations that dragged on while more and more bodies kept piling up in another Cold War U.S. troops once again doing most of the fighting overseas in foreign lands edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome or welcome back to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, a Master Sucker, 2023 Wet Hot Bad Magic Summer Camp Survivor. Man, thankfully, not raised with any murderous brothers, guy who still can't find any scrolls to learn how to shoot wizard fireballs. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, This is the first episode I've recorded since returning back from summer camp. Thank you so much to everyone uh, who came to Pennsylvania and just made it such a magical experience. Uh, It was incredible. I expected a lot and it was better than what I expected. I I know there uh, are a lot of questions from those who went about if we are going to do it again or not do it again. And we are, we haven't firmly decided, but 99% sure we are going to do it again at the same location, but not until 2025. We, we got to take a year off. Lindsay and I need a, a year to lean things down a bit and recharge our batteries. If you listened to uh, last week's Secret Suck, you know all about it. Too much to get into here. Uh, just, you know, been doing too much weekly content and extra time consuming things like planning camps for, for too long without like a real break and taking some steps to avoid burnout. And I know I've taken vacations, but I've just taken working vacations. So anyway, uh, going to see how it feels to do less bonus content and focus on time suck, scared to death, stand up. And having uh, a non-work life for a while <laughs> and see how that feels. Going to make some healthy choices. Maybe go to the doctor and stuff. Uh, and I don't have anything wrong with me. But, you know, maybe go to an, an appointment here and there. Uh, for now, stand up, feeling manageable along with these episodes. And I will be working on material. I've been having a blast doing stand up. God, the summer camp show is so fucking fun. But I'll be in Burlington, Vermont, Buffalo, New York, and Chicago, Illinois coming up this month and next month. So I hope to see you there and you can get tickets to all dates at dancummins.tv. One more thing before we dive in, stick around for the end of today's show for another special edition of Time Sucker Updates. I partnered again with BetterHelp and I will share some more insight and advice given to me to give to you, my a licensed therapist, based on questions gathered months ago from many of you meat sacks. And now let's get into a big episode. The Korean War, sometimes called the Forgotten War, because, well, I mean, it... <sighs> It was super forgettable just because no one cool fought in it, right? Paul Newman, Kirk Douglas, Ted Williams, Lee Marvin, Johnny Carson, Charles Bronson, Mel Brooks, so many other cool people, actors, sports stars, you know, they fought in World War II and none of those kind of people fought in the, in the Korean War. The coolest person to fight in the Korean War 
was a man you probably never heard of, Jimmy Thunder Tucker. Thunder Tuck was a producer on a moderately successful country music station, 98.9 The Rooster, out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And he was known for his signature catchphrase, you've been Thunder Tuck. And then 50 years later, he would successfully sue Ozzy Rocker's ACDC for barely changing the words and making that signature little phrase, uh, you know, part of their big 1990 hit Thunderstruck. But then he would lose his newfound fortune on trying to market a brand of bourbon called Thunderstruck that was 195 proof, made roughly one out of five people who drank it go blind. Oh, JK. Of course, JK. Uh, plenty of cool people fought in the Korean War. And Thunder Tuck does not exist to my knowledge. But now, of course, I wish he did. Thunder Tuck. Uh, but the Korean War has been called the Forgotten War partly due to its placement in history between World War II and the Vietnam War. Both wars that greatly affected global politics, American culture, and society. Korean War began only five years after the end of World War II, and World War II would dwarf the conflict in terms of total loss of life, uh, what was directly, you know, immediately at stake, and the amount of players involved. And the Korean War ended just two years before the start of Vietnam, a conflict that thanks to the emerging counterculture, less trust in the government, more investigative journalism, would end up stirring up a, a lot more overall cultural dissent with the U.S. citizenry. Also, like with Vietnam, the U.S. never officially declared war with Korea, it was a uh, United Nations police action on America's part. Congress never officially declared war in North Korea. But just like with Vietnam, get the fuck out of here, it was war. What's more, unlike World War II and Vietnam, life back in the U.S. remained relatively the same during the Korean War, right? Outside of a draft, there was no rationing. There was comparative lack of, of newspaper coverage, you know, and, and just uh, evening news coverage. It didn't dominate the press like uh, the other wars did. Maybe the biggest reason for it being forgotten, though, was the eventual lack of an obvious victory. It didn't end with cheers and passionate kisses and victory parades. It ended with more of a, ha, huh, just kind of a shrug, really. The war became a stalemate, and ultimately an armistice was signed, which ended the fighting, but not the war itself. Though a stalemate might be a harder thing to enshrine in patriotic memory, it's this stalemate and the massive efforts the U.S. went to to try to end it in such a small period of time that does make the Korean War so memorable. More than 54,000 Americans were killed. More than 8,000 went missing in action in a war that lasted only three years, as opposed to the Vietnam War, where just over 58,000 U.S. died, but in a period of over 15 years, over five times as long. And it wasn't only American forces who died. The Korean War was the first war fought by a coalition of U.N. forces. The United Nations had just been formed. In the fall of 1945, 19 countries would send in troops to fight against the communists. Next to the U.S., the U.K. and Turkey would lose the most. 746 U.K. military personnel would die, as would 741 Turkish fighters. Even tiny little Luxembourg would lose a few soldiers in this war. This was also the first war in uh, which aircraft engaged in air-to-air -air combat. Excuse me, jet aircraft engaged. Aircraft had engaged in previous wars and dogfights. But this was the first time it was jet fighters. And it was the first skirmish in the Cold War between the Soviet-backed communists and the, you know, capitalist U.S. Very significant war. Uh, you know, it was, uh, I, should, I guess I should say like uh, uh, democratic as opposed to capitalist would be the better comparison between communism and, and America. Uh, indeed, it was a skirmish that would eventually shape the entire Cold War itself. As a stalemate began a battle between capitalism and communism that would last for decades or democracy and communism. You know, that really is still going on. And yet it gets very little attention compared to World War I or World War II or Vietnam or more recent military international actions like Operation Desert Storm or Operation Enduring Freedom. 
but it deserves some extra exposure. I'm happy to give it here. Now let's uh, let's give it that exposure, you curious motherfuckers, and get started. Journey now to a place that many of us probably have never been to before, though I bet uh, uh, many would like to, Korea. I would love to check out Korea, well, South Korea. Mostly, honestly, due to my love of ramen soup. Holy shit, do I love a good bowl of ramen soup with some miso broth, some pork, right? Make it two soft-boiled eggs. And I love Korean cinema. Hot damn, do Koreans make some amazing movies. Parasite, Old Boy, The Wailing, on and on. And if I was single, which I'm not, I'm very much in love with my beautiful wife, Lindsay, who I think is gorgeous. I'm not trying to get myself in trouble here, but also I have always found Korean women uh, to be some of the most beautiful women on earth. Amazing cheekbones. Slight and curvy at the same time. Silky hair. Hail Lucifina. I'd also like to check out South Korean tech, right? Samsung, LG, and more. What shit do they have over there that's going to take five fucking years to get over here? And it would be great to hike in some of their parks. Sierraksan National Park, uh, Bukhansan National Park, and more. So I guess there's a lot of fucking reasons I would like to go check out South Korea someday. I had no idea how interested I was in South Korea until I started talking about Korea. K-pop, not one of the reasons, by the way. I know it's huge, but not into it. Sorry, K-pop fans. Uh, American soldiers did not get to enjoy the best of Korea, though. It was very different in the 1950s. Weather was the same, though. Not the best for fighting. Uh, Korea was once known to English speakers as chosen. When winter hit, Americans dubbed it frozen chosen. Temperatures would drop, uh, you know, well below zero. I'm talking 30, 40 below zero. Uh, mountainous peninsula jutting south from the Asian landmass. Korea is a 600-mile-long piece of land, some 85,000 square miles about the size of Utah, more or less uh, shaped like Florida. You know, it's, it's uh, Florida. If Florida's America's dick, Korea's Asia's dick. It extends through nine parallels of latitude in the U.S., roughly from Boston, Massachusetts to Columbia, South Carolina. The 38th parallel, about the latitude of Lexington, Kentucky, will become the political north-south border. In width, Korea varies from 200 miles at the broadest point to 90 miles at its narrow waist. Much of the land is mountainous, with the dominating feature being the Tybek mountain range, which runs down from the east coast and causes most of Korea's rivers to flow to the west. Uh, the, to the west is China, to the east, Japan. To the south lies the Korea Strait, and on the north is Korea's only land border, marked by the Yalu and Tumyun rivers. Beyond the Korean border lies a 500-mile stretch of Chinese Manchuria, and at the northeastern tip of the Korean peninsula, a small 11-mile section of Soviet Siberia. As the Korean Peninsula was settled some 700,000 years ago, the landscape records uh, eons of human development, from the tools made of animal horns and stone to the comb-patterned pottery of the Neolithic Age, around 8,000 BCE. Around 10,000 BCE, uh, the first peninsula leaders consolidated their power, forming proto-states, we think. Uh, Throughout recorded Korean history, rulers have done their best to remain isolated and to steer clear of great power politics, and that has often not worked out in their favor. Since ancient times, Korea has been the preferred invasion route of Japan into the Asian continent, as well as the dagger aimed at Japan from China. There's an old Korean maxim, and it says, when the whales collide, the shrimp in the middle is the one who suffers. Poor Korea. It was that little fucking shrimp, again, during the Korean War, suffering. When American soldiers arrived for the war, Korea's population was around 30 million for the whole peninsula. North Korea, though it contained 60% of the land area, had about a third of that population, so around 10 million. Because the North generated most of the peninsula's electricity, though, it did own the bulk of Korean heavy industries. Still, the entire country was poorly connected with fewer than 50 miles of paved roads. 
Unpaved roads meant mud in the summer, dust in the winter. In the north, there were only a few single-track rail lines connecting to a double-track rail line that ran from the capital Seoul, southeast to uh, Busan, then known mostly as Pusan, which is how I'll refer to it today. And Pusan was and still is the peninsula's biggest commercial port, located on the east coast, a 245-mile drive to the southeast from Seoul. South Korea was almost entirely agricultural, growing rice and barley, and people living in one-story buildings made of mud, small sticks, and South Korea's rolling wilderness. Uh, The summers were, like they still are, fucking hot, rainy, and humid. Temperatures can reach 105 degrees Fahrenheit, with the humidity reaching 90% in July. Climbing Korea's steep hills and carrying a weapon and ammunition, not to mention a heavy pack on one's back, was fucking brutal. Newcomers often collapsed before reaching a summit, and there were so many summits. Seemed to soldiers like there was always another hill, a hill with no paved roads lying ahead. One popular Korean war refrain was, not this hill, the next one. Winters were the worst. Freezing winds came down out of Siberia and in the mountains where most of the fighting took place, there was a constant numbing icy chill. Staying in the open meant risking frostbite, but becoming too comfortable in your sleeping bag meant the possibility of being surprised and killed by a merciless enemy who fought at all hours of the day and night. In order to understand the fighting that took place in Korea, first we need to look at why the nation was divided into northern and southern halves at the close of World War II by the Soviets and Americans who in theory wanted to prepare the peninsula to govern themselves. Why did Korea need any preparation? Well, because it had been a long time since they self-governed. Japan had long ruled Korea and exploited the ever-loving shit out of them. 1910, Korea was annexed by the Empire of Japan, which planned to dominate all of Asia. Under this false message of liberation, if you'll recall from our World War II two-parter, the good old Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, where uh, Asia would be free from Western imperialism and instead brutally subjugated by the Japanese who considered themselves racially superior to all other Asian cultures. Only when prospering in this plan, in this sphere, were the Japanese. Uh, Korea would be considered a part of Japan until 1945. In order to establish control over its new protectorate, the Empire of Japan waged an all-out war against Korean culture and sovereignty. Japan set up a government in Korea with the governor generalship filled by generals or admirals appointed by the Japanese emperor, so a, a puppet government. The Koreans were deprived of freedom of assembly, association, the press, free speech. Schools and universities forbade speaking Korean, emphasized manual labor and loyalty to the Japanese emperor. Public places adopted uh, Japanese and an edict to make films in Japanese soon followed. It also became a crime to teach history from non-approved texts and authorities would burn over 200,000 Korean historical documents, essentially just wiping out the historical memory of Korea. Imagine if that happened today in America, right? If some foreign power came over, started erasing our culture, replacing it with their own. Imagine if some foreign ruler came over and did, well, you know, literally exactly what we did to all the American Indian tribes. But for real, put it in the context of right now. All of a sudden, your history books are burned, replaced with new ones, touting how uh, Russia or China is the fucking best, most benevolent nation in the world. And if you disagree, well, you're going to get re-educated, motherfucker. All of a sudden, you know, podcasts like this are replaced with state propaganda, social media censored way more than AI bots like Real Boy Tiago already do censor Facebook. What if instead of losing your job because you won't take a, a vaccine, you're put in prison or tortured if you don't do what the government says? You're put in prison or tortured if you protest. Or if you openly love, you know, your own culture. Uh, And then there were all the land grabs that Japan did. 
Japanese colonial government did a shit like promote a land survey ordinance that forced landowners to report the exact size and area of their land. And if they failed to do that, uh, which many farmers, you know, did because they uh, weren't told in Korean to do this and they didn't speak Japanese, then they were deprived of their land. Right again, imagine that you worked your fucking ass off to buy yourself a farm. You own it free and clear. Maybe you inherited it from, uh, you know, uh, your, your parents. It's been in your family for generations. And then you just get tricked out of it by some foreign government. Now you have nothing, right? How tempted are you to go full Bon Jovi, blaze of glory? I'm going down in a blaze of glory. Lord, I never drew first, but I drew first blood. I'm no one's son. Call me young gun. I know that reference was a stretch, <laughs> but it does kind of fit what I was saying. I've, I've always said, my, I've always said my whole life, any opportunity I have to work Bon Jovi lyrics into a historical podcast episode about the Korean War and the preceding events that led up to it, I'm going to take it. Anyway, farmland and forests owned uh, jointly by a village or a clan were likewise expropriated by the Japanese since no single individual could now claim them. New law, you know, much of the land thus expropriated was uh, sold cheaply to new Japanese immigrants. So they're just taking all their stuff, taking their culture. Uh, The occupation government also promoted Japanese commerce in Korea while barring Koreans from similar activities. Right, Traditional colonial power shit. So similar to what the British, Spanish, Portuguese, and others did to so much of the new world. Uh, similar to what we did to native tribes, what the Romans did to anyone not Roman, what the Mongols did to people not Mongol, what the Aztecs did to non-Aztecs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Japan did to Korea what aggressive growing empires have done to populations, you know, they've taken over for as long as there has been empires. Russia doing it to Ukraine right fucking now. But then Japan got its ass kicked at the end of World War II. So now the question was what to do with Korea. This question was on the Allied powers' minds long before a decisive victory was achieved. Defeating Japan meant the possibility of striking down a long-held Asian order, potentially leaving the continent in chaos. In the power vacuum, who would take control? U.S. leaders worried it would be someone not friendly to Western democratic capitalistic leanings. The Soviets worried the same, but in reverse. The Cairo Declaration issued on December 1st, 1943 by the United States, Great Britain, and China, before the communists took it over, pledged independence for Korea in due course. When you're ready... And as you can imagine, most Koreans did not like that, found it pretty, you know, patronizing, felt quite a bit insulted. They felt like in the words of one of America's foremost late 20th and early 21st century philosophers, it's my life, it's now or never, I ain't gonna live forever, just like John Bon Jovi said. They wanted to live their lives as they saw fit right now, now or never. I never knew how much uh, the Korean War meant to John Bon Jovi prior to this week. Uh, the words due course aroused the leaders of the Korean provisional government in Chongqing to request interpretation from the U.S. regarding exactly what the fuck that meant. Their request received no answer. Then at the Yalta conference held in February of 1945 between the world's superpowers to decide how to reshape a lot of the world following World War II, President FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt, proposed to Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin, dickhead, uh, a four-power trusteeship for Korea consisting of the U.S., Great Britain, and the USSR and the Republic of China. Stalin agreed to Roosevelt's suggestion in principle, but they never reached any formal agreement. And after the Yalta meeting, there was a growing uneasiness between the Anglo-American allies and the USSR. Nobody quite knew how the communist USSR and the capitalist West were going to coexist post-war. Spoiler alert, not real well. Uh, Could be worse, no nuclear apocalypse, uh, but still not well. Uh, Throughout the Potsdam Conference in July of 1945, when the US, UK and the 
USSR were brainstorming on how to prioritize global peace following World War II, U.S. military leaders were encouraging Soviet entry into the war against Japan. The Soviet military leaders asked their U.S. counterparts about invading Japanese-occupied Korea. The Americans replied that such an expedition would not be advisable until after a successful landing had taken place on the Japanese mainland, which of course would never happen because two massive fucking bombs were dropped on Japan instead. The ensuing Potsdam Declaration included the statement that the terms of the Cairo Declaration, which promised Korea's independence, shall be carried out. But it still didn't say when. So the plan is still to assist North Korea, i.e. occupy it and brainwash, I mean train Koreans into accepting a U.S. or USSR approved system of government and then let them do what they want, whatever they want, if whatever they want is what the USSR or the U.S. wants. Then as soon as Japan surrendered, swarms of Soviet troops poured in from Manchuria, occupying North Korea. And the Cold War, a term that will very soon be coined in October of 1945, had begun. The General Order Number 1, drafted a few months earlier on August 11th by the United States for Japanese surrender uh, terms in Korea, provided for Japanese forces north of latitude 38, north, also known as the 38th parallel, to surrender to the Soviets and those south of that line to the Americans. Why the 38th parallel? U.S. Army officers Dean Rusk and Charles Bone Steel. Chuck fucking Bone Steel. What a name consulted a National Geographic map of Asia to determine the post-war dividing line between Soviet and U.S. zones of control in Korea. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Neither man was an expert on the country. And they just looked at this map <laughs> and failing to find any obvious natural barrier between North and South Korea, uh, North and the South, they just somewhat randomly selected the 38th parallel, a, a border that was tentatively proposed at the Potsdam Conference. All right, this line, at quick glance, looks like it divides things pretty evenly, but it actually doesn't. North Korea is about 21% bigger. So it's not really in the half there. Imagine your nation being divided up by two superpowers, just like a couple dudes, you know, randomly sliced into a pizza. This division had nothing to do with the ideologies of the people living on either side and everything to do with diplomacy between the USSR and the US. So again, like, you know, typical colonial shit reminds me of what multiple colonial powers did to Africa, you know, many, many decades ago. Just fucking arbitrarily just kind of chopped it up. And then like, oh man, this, this led to a lot of chaos. That's crazy. Once again, Korea is the damn shrimp trapped between two big colliding whales. And once again, right, the shrimp's going to suffer. The new division placed the capital city of Seoul in the American zone, uh, but it was just 35 miles south of that dividing line. So a little tense, right? The residents of Seoul have been uh, at least somewhat nervous about North Korea aggression pretty much ever since this has happened. Like, would you sleep easy at night knowing that your enemy who fucking hates you wants to destroy your, your uh, system of, uh, you know, government is just like a half hour drive away? Stalin did not object to the American proposal, and on September 8th, American troops landed in southern Korea, almost a month after the first Soviets entered the north. The following day, the U.S. received Japanese surrender in Seoul. Uh, there were now two zones, northern and southern, and the Soviets began to seal off the 38th parallel. And what was supposed to be focused on the you know, restoration of Korean autonomy would quickly become a, a proxy war between American capitalism and Soviet communism. I don't know why I got hung up on capitalism versus communism earlier, as opposed to democracy versus communism. Either one works. And really, capitalism makes more sense. I'm, I'm a little sleepy. Uh, since U.S. policy toward Korea during World War II had aimed to prevent any single power's domination of Korea, it may be reasonably concluded that the principal reason for the division and occupation by U.S. troops as the war was ending was to stop the Soviet advance south of the 38th parallel. But for Koreans, you know, this is all incredibly confusing. In the South, various political parties quickly officially spring up, 
Many had likely been loosely operated in the shadows for many years already. Although they were roughly divided into rightists, leftists, middle of the roaders, they all had a common goal. The immediate uh, immediate attainment of self-government for the entirety of the peninsula. As early as August 16th, 1945, some Koreans organized a committee for the preparation of Korean independence, headed by Woon Young-lu, who was closely associated with the leftists. On September 6th, the delegates attended a national assembly that was called by the committee proclaimed the People's Republic of Korea. But the U.S. military government, under Lieutenant General John R. Hodge, the commanding general of the U.S. Armed Forces in Korea, refused to recognize the republic, asserting that the military government was the only government in Korea as stipulated in General Order No. 1. There was an idea on the part of the U.S. to create a trusteeship that would supersede both the American and Soviet occupation forces. A great thought, maybe, but obviously in practice, fucking complicated. The world's two largest military powers, with wildly different, basically complete opposite political ideologies, working together, in theory, to prepare a peninsula with strategic military significance for independence, or, you know, for both of them. Um, so, yeah, strategic military independence, you know, for both the Soviets and the U.S., and, but they're, they're supposed to just, you know, let go of this. Uh, did anyone actually think that this shit was going to work out? Then things got even more complicated. In late December of 1945, the Council of Foreign Ministers, representing the U.S., the Soviet Union, and Great Britain, met in Moscow and decided to create a four-power Korean trusteeship of up to five years. Upon receiving the news, Koreans reacted, understandably, violently. It's my life, it's now or never. I ain't gonna live forever. You get it. February of 1946, south of the 38th parallel, to soothe the discontent, the military government created the Representative Democratic Council as an advisory body to the military government. The body was composed of Koreans and had at its chair as its chairman, Syngman Rhee, former president of the Korean government in exile. Rhee was considered somewhat of a Korean George Washington. He'd been born in 1875 in what is now North Korea and became an active member of the Korean student movement against Japanese occupation. 1897, he was jailed and tortured for his desire for Korean independence. Converting to Christianity while in jail, he was released in 1904 and came to the United States where he received a BA from George Washington University, an MA from Harvard University, and a PhD in theology from Princeton University. He was no dummy. When he returned to Korea in 1910, he became an active leader of a Korean provisional government in exile and campaigned tirelessly for united and independent Korea. And now, after pushing for independence for uh, Korea for roughly half a century, he is chomping at the fucking bit to get Korean autonomy now. And he wants to be in charge. But the foreign military government had other plans. In October of 1946, the military government created an interim legislative assembly, half of whose members were elected by the people and half appointed by the military government. The assembly was empowered to enact ordinances on domestic affairs, but subject to the veto of the military government led by foreign officers. So kind of empowered, but not really. And soon the assembly would publicly condemn the trusteeship in Korea. So everybody's just thinking, who the fuck is in charge here? Well, all this is happening in the South. What's going on in the North? Unlike U.S. forces in the South, the Soviet army marched into the, uh, you know, the northern part of the peninsula in 1945, accompanied by a band of expatriate Korean communists. By placing the latter in key positions of power, the Soviet Union easily, quickly set up a communist-controlled government. On August 25th, 1945, the People's Executive Committee of North Korea's South uh, Hamyong Province, fucking communists love long names, uh, was created by the South Yong Province <laughs> Communist Council and other nationalists. 
The Soviet authorities recognized the committee's administrative power in the province, thus setting a precedent for the committee's role throughout the provinces of the Northern Zone. This was how the Soviet Union placed the North under its control without actually establishing a military government. So they basically did the same thing as the U.S. Uh, was doing in the South, but they did it sneakier, letting Koreans think that they had self-determination. But really, the Soviets, you know, were in charge of their North Korean puppets. The new North Korean government was ran by North Koreans, but North Koreans hand-selected by the Soviets, Soviets who had, you know, long indoctrinated them into their communist beliefs. In October of 1945, Korean leaders in the North organized the Bureau of Five Provinces Administration, a central governing body, and this was replaced in February of 1946 by the Provisional People's Committee for North Korea. This news agency, a centralized government, excuse me, this new agency, not a news site, a centralized government adopted the political structure, of course, of the Soviet Union. Right? The Soviets would not have accepted anything but that. Soon, a charismatic and ruthless leader would emerge. Communist leader Kim Il-sung, who had fought in the resistance movement against the Japanese occupation, arrived in Pyongyang in the uniform of a major of the Red Army and was introduced to the people as a national hero on October 14th, 1945, right? Uh, we know he was born in 1912 near North Korea's capital city of Pyongyang, uh, but much of his early life other than that, unclear. Due to the North Korean government for decades, putting out a bunch of weird fucking North Korean propaganda aimed at making its citizens think he was literally some kind of God, just like they will do with his successors. Uh, for example, North Korean kids will be taught at school that Kim, Kim Il-sung uh, could teleport <laughs> during battle, right? Uh, he also didn't shit, like didn't take a poop ever. No, not our leader. Our leader, our teleporting leader doesn't poop. That's just for us non-teleporting dirty mor mortals. Uh, he was super smart, right? He was writing patriotic slogans and beautiful calligraphy by the age of three. He's a fucking genius. Other probable truths are that he and his family supposedly left Korea for Manchuria to escape the Japanese occupation. And in 1962, when he was 14, he joined China's Communist Youth League, later attended the Wampoa Military Academy in Canton. Over 15 uh, years later, he traveled to the Soviet Union during World War II, studied at a Russian military academy, and later commanded one of two Korean units that fought at Stalingrad. By the war's end, he had risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel and had been awarded the Order of Lenin by Joseph Stalin. He was a great communist believer. He was Stalin's lapdog. True believer when it came to communism, uh, wasn't a god, but was a warrior, and he would fight for his beliefs. When Soviet troops entered Korea in August of 1945, they brought their puppet Kim with them to administer the country. Shortly after his public appearance, Kim was elected, quote unquote, I fucking doubt it, uh, first secretary of the North Korean Central Bureau of the Communist Party. You know, whether he got the most votes, anyone's guess. Uh, after the Provisional People's Committee was organized with Kim as its chairman, it assumed the helm of existing central administrative bureaus. A year later, February of 1947, a legislative body was established under the name of Supreme People's Assembly. And with the strong support of the Soviet occupation authorities, Kim commenced consolidating his political power. It was now South Korea versus North Korea. Who was the legitimate government? How the fuck were things going to be consolidated into one Korean government now? Well, of course they weren't. When the joint U.S.-USSR commission had come together in 1945, it was decided that the opposing power would supervise the other power's military commands so the U.S.S.R. would be supervised, in theory, the U.S., while the U.S. supervised the U.S.S.R., but are either of those you know, situations going to be allowed to happen now? When the commission convened in Seoul from May, from excuse me, March to May 1946, the Soviet delegates demanded that those Korean political groups that had opposed trusteeship be excluded from voicing their opinions. Right, already starting with their uh, suppressive bullshit. 
Uh, the U.S., who had already seen backlash in South Korea for doing the exact same thing, refused. Soon the idea of a unified Korea began to collapse. The committee met again from May to August of 1947, uh, achieved nothing towards unification. The USSR would soon block another move for unified Korea. This took place in November of 1947 when the UN General Assembly in New York City adopted a resolution proposed by the U.S. that called for general democratic elections in Korea under the observation of a UN temporary commission on Korea. These elect or those elected, excuse me, were to make up a national assembly, establish a government, and arrange with the occupying powers for the withdrawal of their troops from Korea. But the USSR, you know, put up a big old block. They barred the temporary commission from just entering at all the northern zone. A democratic election would not bode well for their plans. And they knew that. While North Korea was the largest section of the peninsula, geographically, right, South Korea population much bigger. About 10 million in the north versus around 20 million in the south. Uh, Southern population indoctrinated into favoring capitalism as opposed to communism, you know, had twice the voting power. While a vote in the north was now not going to happen. The south held elections under the supervision of the Temporary Commission on May 10th, 1948. The National Assembly convened on May 31st, elected Syngman Rhee as its speaker. Shortly afterward, a constitution is adopted and Rhee is elected president on July 20th, 1948. Dude waited a long time. Stayed focused on the prize for five decades. And now he got it. That is a pretty cool story. And he still has it. He is still running South Korea today. He is 148 years young. He will possibly always be running South Korea. He just loves it so much. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like he used to sing. I will love you, baby, always. And I'll be there forever and a day. Always. I'll be there till the stars don't shine, till the heavens burst and the words don't rhyme. And I know when I die, you'll be on my mind and I'll love you always. No, he didn't sing that. And I didn't sing that well. I fucked up the middle part. But John Bon Jovi, world's foremost historical songwriter with an emphasis on North Korean history, he sang the shit out of that. And Rhea is not currently ruling South Korea, of course. No, he's been dead for a long time. But he would run South Korea for a while. On August 15th, 1948, the Republic of Korea was inaugurated uh, with Seoul as the the capital, and the temporary military government came to an end. In December, the UN General Assembly declared that the Republic was the only lawful government in Korea, as in the only lawful government for all the Korean Peninsula. As you can imagine, the USSR, North Korea, ah, they didn't like that. Stalin was like, and I quote, what fuck? What fuck? Who fuck think they bound be? Yankee scumfuck. Uncle Sam whore Yankee scumfuck. Now tell me who McDonald was Stalin what ruble scumfuck dick. It's a loose translation. Sometimes it's hard to find an exact English equivalent for a lot of Russian words. And I'm not nearly as fluent in Russian as I am in Italian. Uh, the North made an opposing move, declaring their own legitimate government. On November 18th, 1947, the Supreme People's Assembly of North Korea set up a committee to draft a constitution. The committee adopted the new constitution in April of 1948, and on August 25th, elections for members of the Supreme People's Assembly were held with a single list of candidates. On September 3rd, the constitution was ratified by the Supreme People's Assembly, which was holding its first meeting in Pyongyang. Kim Il-sung appointed premier. (laughs) Fucking crazy. It's crazy he got those votes. And on September 9th, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was proclaimed with the capital at Pyongyang. And on October 12th, 1948, the USSR recognized this state as the only lawful government in all of Korea. You hear that, Uncle Sam? 
So the writing is on the wall. Uh, take that and this, Uncle Scums. Fuck Sam. Uncle fucking Yankee suck comedy dick cock penis wiener. Right? He's very upset. He's very worked up. The half of Korea occupied by American forces, the half of Korea occupied by Soviet forces, never going to be unified. At least not peacefully. War is imminent now. Which government will win? Who will rule all of Korea, the capitalists or the communists? Will the Koreans ever truly get their sovereignty back? I know almost all of you already know the answers to all these questions, but still fun to ask them. Now let's examine the details of the answers. In today's The Time for War Has Come, Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it, though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash time suck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we're back to the Korean War. Let's get into the weeds now for real with our timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Back to 1946. Focusing on the military buildup now that we already know how the two governments formed in the wake of Japanese surrender and the end of World War II. Uh, what we didn't cover was how each side responded militarily. South Korea began to organize the police constabulary uh, reserve. I think I got that word right. Uh, constabulary. I think so. It always tricks me a little bit. Uh, in December of 1948, the Department of National Defense was established, but it wasn't really ready to do much defending. By June of 1950, when the war broke out, South Korea had a 98,000-man force, but they were only equipped with small arms, like barely enough to deal with internal revolts from communist insurgents and border attacks. Military preparations in North Korea, much more extensive. Four years earlier, 1946, the Soviet authorities had already organized a 20,000-man constabulary uh, and numerous army units. And by that August, the North Korean army was established, its title changing to the Korean's People Army in February of 1948. By the end of 48, the KPA would have 125,000 troops and an additional 45,000 Soviet occupation troops. Virtually all North Korean Labor Party members were urged to enlist, and there was also a general conscription of men between the ages of 18 and 35 right, to be ready to fight. Also, as early as 1946, the Soviets were sending thousands of Koreans to the USSR for specialized training. Along with that, the Soviet Union sent over 150 Soviet-made T-34 tanks, three types of artillery, 122-millimeter howitzers, self-propelled guns, about 150 aircraft with pilots, tankers, and tank maintenance personnel, all trained by Soviets. North Korea would also get help from China in the form of 12,000 ethnic Korean troops from China's army. At the onset of war, well, it's thought that a lot of them are ethnic Korean. I don't, I don't have the fucking 23 me for all of them. <laughs> so it's probably a mix, Chinese and Korean. At the onset of war, North Korean forces would be far superior to those of South Korea in training equipment and numbers. The military might or lack thereof, the South Korean army would be put to the test in October of 1948 when a revolt broke out in the cities of Yusu and Suncheon. Approximately 2,000 left-leaning soldiers based in Yusun, uh, 
yeah, excuse me, uh, uh, Yusan area, the Yusan area, uh, raised arms in opposition to the re-government's handling of a previous uprising in Jeju regarding basically, you know, UN involvement in South Korea. Uh, local troops rushed to the scene, some uh, police force, and after several days of savage fighting, managed to quell the communist-inspired rebellion. As a result, some 1,500 communists were purged from the constabulary. Decades later, in 2003, the South Korean government would admit that up to 20,000 suspected communists between the two uprisings were jailed, beaten, stripped of their property, many of them murdered, etc. So many war crimes uh, during this period of Korean history on both sides. Nearly 5 million people overall will die. More than half of these, about 10% of Korea's pre-war population were civilians. And this rate of civilian casualty will be higher than World War II or the Vietnam Wars rate. Several weeks following the uh, Yosun incident, the ROK government, Republic of Korea, aka South Korea, set up departments of National Defense, Army, and Navy. Uh, all to say, or At the same time, all constabulary forces became part of the ROK Army. The ROK Army was organized into eight combat divisions, totaling approximately 65,000 men equipped with the U.S. M1 rifle, 30 caliber carbine, and 60 millimeter and 81 millimeter mortars. Uh, and, uh, other American weapons included rocket launchers, anti-tank guns, and howitzers, but nothing stronger. And that was intentional. The U.S. initially didn't want South Korea to be capable of waging aggressive warfare because they didn't want to be dragged into another war, another big war close to World War II. They still hoped that the North and South could work things out peacefully, at least relatively peacefully. And that's why the South Koreans didn't get tanks, uh, medium artillery, four, you know, 0.2 inch mortars, recoilless rifles, fighter aircraft, bombers, and other shit. Similarly, the ROK Navy consisted only of a patrol craft recently purchased from the United States, three other similar aircraft in Hawaii en route to Korea, uh, one landing ship, a tank, <laughs> 15 former U.S. minesweepers, 10 former Japanese mine layers, various other small crafts. U.S. wanted to limit South Korea's ability to escalate. And this policy, you know, will backfire when the South Koreans don't have enough firepower to stop Northern communist aggression and the U.S. then gets pulled into war anyway and into a war that their ally is losing. The Soviet occupation forces left North Korea in December of 1948, leaving behind for training purposes 150 advisors for each army division. And those advisors would soon come in handy. Early 1949, Kim Il-sung uh, pressed his case with Stalin that the time had come for a conventional invasion of the South, turn all of Korea into communist Korea. And Stalin actually refused. He was having second thoughts briefly about communism, right? Did he still enjoy sending innocent people to gulags, sacrificing millions of his citizens as cannon fodder in wars, having suspected traitors and political rivals assassinated on his whims? Yeah, of course he did. He loved all of that. But he also was thinking about how he loved cheeseburgers and driving movies. He dreamt of opening a, a fried chicken franchise. He wanted to try his hand to beat poetry in Greenwich Village. And he wanted more time for romance. He'd met a girl named Gina on a secret trip to New Jersey. And he wanted to maybe take a union job working on the docks to help put more money on the table so she didn't have to work all the uh, day at the diner. Right? She had written him a letter that really spoke to his heart. We've got to hold on to what we've got. It doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. We've got each other. And that's a lot for love. We'll give it a shot. Oh, we're halfway there. Oh, living on a prayer. Sorry. I really shoehorned uh, those Bon Jovi lyrics in there that time. I, I, <laughs> I just wanted to shake shit up, you know, just for, for a bit there. Uh, Stalin didn't refuse because his commitment to communism was wavering. He loved communism. And he hated Yankee scum fuck Americans. 
But Stalin was concerned about the relative unpreparedness of the North Korean armed forces and about possible U.S. involvement. But he did promise to prepare for, you know, war when uh, or help prepare for war when the time came. March of 1949, the USSR concluded a reciprocal aid agreement with North Korea in which it agreed to furnish heavy military equipment. And by June of 1950, North Korean forces numbered 135,000, including a tank brigade. Meanwhile, U.S. occupation forces completely withdrew from Korea by June of 1949, leaving behind a force of only about 500 men as a U.S. military advisory group to train the South Korean armed forces. U.S. military had way less men than it had a half decade earlier. Far less money for new equipment, too. The U.S. had significantly downgraded its military spending in the wake of World War II, which makes sense, right? From $50 billion in 1945 down to about $5 billion in 1950. In 1945, there were 8,250,000 men on active service. 1950, less than 600,000. The American public had been eager to get the boys home quickly. American men were working good factory jobs now, buying homes in the suburbs with white picket fences and little dogs and getting busy creating baby boomers and not fighting and dying across the world like they had been in both World War II and World War I. Right? War was something that uh, America was fucking sick of. The U.S. 8th Army, uh, you know, the U.S. 8th Army, excuse me, under Lieutenant General Walton H. Walker was holding things down in Japan with four divisions. But because of peacetime economy, the 8th was really a so-called hollow army. The divisions had two regiments instead of the standard three. Moreover, as one veteran remembered, we were using equipment and weapons salvaged from Okinawa and places like that. We never saw anything new. There was also the Far East Air Force under Lieutenant General George E. Stratemeyer and the U.S. 5th Air Force under Major General Earl E. Partridge. They were in better shape than the Army, but you know, also well below standard strength. Only 553 of their aircraft were in operational combat units. Over 600 other aircraft were either in storage, some stayed at disrepair, or were being used for transport or training. The U.S. Navy in the Far East was probably in the best shape of any of the services. Naval forces in the Pacific under the command of Admiral Arthur W. Radford. U.S. Naval forces Far East commanded by Vice Admiral C. Turner Joy. In nearby waters, the Navy had a cruiser, a destroyer division, part of a minesweeper squadron, and a small amphibious force. To the south was the 7th Fleet, commanded by Vice Admiral Arthur D. Sturble, and composed of the aircraft carrier Valley Forge, a heavy cruiser, and eight destroyers. Still, these troops were far from combat ready and far from ready to help South Korea. But much like the USSR, the U.S. made it clear to the government in South Korea that they would help set things up and send support if needed. And they already were given financial aid. In October of 1949, the U.S. granted South Korea $10,200,000 for military aid and then another $110 million for economic aid for the fiscal year of 1950, the first year of a contemplated three-year program. In addition, the U.S. Congress approved $10,970,000 for additional military aid in March of 1950. What an interesting thing, right? To give other nations economic aid, not loans, just give them money, give them weapons, etc., uh, the U.S., by the way, has given out over $3.75 trillion in foreign aid adjusted for inflation since the end of World War II. The U.S. has provided more financial assistance to foreign nations than any other country in the wake of World War II. Uh, meanwhile, from what I've been able to dig up, the U.S. has not received any foreign assistance from any nation since the fucking Civil War. When Russia sent two naval fleets to American waters to protect the strategic ports in New York and San Francisco. Why do we always give, but never get? Well, technically, the U.S. is the richest country in the world, has been for over 60 years with a GDP of $25.46 $25, $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $25. $
and a total net worth of 145.8 trillion. That's slightly different than 25 bucks. We have a GDP of fucking 25 bucks. We're good. We're good. We don't fucking need anything. Look, we got a 20 and a five. We It's enough for everybody. No, 25 trillion. But we also currently carry $7.3 trillion in foreign debt. And I just don't fully understand why a bunch of that debt can't be forgiven if we're continually fucking bankrolling so many other countries, right? Because uh, the lives of many of us uh, are, you know, uh, just helping the lives, right? Not just money, excuse me, not just giving money to foreign nations, but also, you know, sacrificing the lives of our citizens to help one foreign nation after another. That's what I wanted to say. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but that shit does just piss me off. Right? It's not like uh, we don't have a ton of economic problems to work on here that we could work on more quickly if that debt was forgiven. Okay, back to the US. Giving shit to South Korea, who has yet to give shit back to us. We should all at least have free big screen plasma TVs. Uh, the financial military gifts uh, and assistance to South Korea. Just the beginning of America's still ongoing role as the leading proponent of global democracy. A month later, in April of 1950, a National Security Council report known as NSC-68 had recommended to the U.S. Uh, that the U.S. excuse me use military force to contain communist expansionism anywhere it seemed to be occurring, regardless of the intrinsic, strategic, or economic value of the lands in question. Bojangles just nodded with a steely look in his eye. I think he always. Uh, I think I think he also just mouthed uh, "money well spent" and may have quoted Rambo. Nothing is over. Nothing. You just don't turn it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the U.S. was doing here in Korea would mark the beginning of the U.S. policy known as containment, the geopolitical foreign policy of preventing the spread of communism. The policy caused a response from the Soviet Union, Cold War escalation, baby, uh, to increase communist influ- influence in Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Containment represented a middle ground position between uh, uh, detente, uh, relaxation of relations, not confident on detente, detente uh, pronunciation, and rollback, actively replacing the regime. But just because it was a middle ground didn't mean containment couldn't be bloody and costly. NSC-68 concluded that a massive military buildup was necessary to deal with the Soviet threat. According to the report drafted by Paul Nitze and others, in the words of the Federalist, number 28, the means to be employed must be proportioned to the extent of the mischief. The mischief may be a global war or it may be a Soviet campaign for limited objectives. In either case, we should take no avoidable initiative which would cause it to become a war of annihilation. And if we have the forces to defeat a Soviet drive for limited objectives, it may well be to our interest not to let it become a global war. Well said, Mr. Nitzi. I think sometimes our role as global watchdog and the international military actions we frequently take, both covertly and overtly, can seem like we're overstepping, right? Overspending, overreaching. But what if we didn't do that? What if the Soviets did manage to spread their brand of Marxism across the globe because we didn't act in places like Korea? What if that domino fell and then it led to another and another and soon we were no longer capable of stopping more from falling? What if they'd grown too powerful? What if someday we were flanked by a communist nation with ties to the Soviets directly to the north and Canada, directly to the south and Mexico? What if we didn't do anything preventative and things spread to the point where communist aggression had led to World War III, right? Some type of nuclear holocaust. And if you're like me, you might think, yeah, but why do we have to do that? Why is that our job? Well, I guess the simple answer is, uh, if we didn't do it, who would and who else is capable of doing it? The U.S. has now long had the most powerful military in the world, right? In second place is Russia. Third place is China. Not our friends. As of April 2023, we have 92 destroyers, 11 aircraft carriers, 13,300 aircraft, 983 attack choppers, 
China has 50 destroyers. Russia has around 4,100 military aircraft. But again, why the fuck aren't we being paid for that global presence, right? Sorry, again, just an interesting quick tangent to me. Uh, Back to the early summer of 1950, after another Kim visit to Moscow in March and April of 1950, uh, Stalin approved an an invasion. Now with a go-ahead from China's communist leader, Mao Zedong as well, Stalin gave his reluctant approval, uh, sent Soviet military advisors to Korea to help plan a campaign. From the historical evidence, it seems Kim assured Stalin of a quick military victory, one that would include a communist-led general uprising against Sigmund Rhee. And it looks like Kim foolishly did not think the U.S. would intervene. He probably figured, you know, with his fucking teleportation, Mortal Kombat-like powers, how can he lose? He's a god. He just fucking zip, 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 teleport around the battlefield, do what he needs to do. Uh, On the night of June 24th, 1950, Soviet howitzers and self-propelled guns were positioned along the 38th parallel. Some Soviet-made T-34 tanks cautiously moved forward to attack positions, along with 90,000 roughly trained combat troops. And what was happening this time in the South? Well, they were actually dealing with a massive uh, defection problem with a lot of runaways, big runaway problem heading to the north. Ooh, she's a little runaway. Daddy's girl learned fast all the things she couldn't say. Ooh, she's a little runaway. I feel like those Bon Jovi lyrics did fit a little bit better. Kind of. If that was happening, but it wasn't. Uh, What was really happening in the South? The military equipment committed under the U.S. military assistance program was still en route to South Korea. By the way, how many fucking hits did John Bajelvi have? A lot. A lot. Uh, South Korea not ready for war. But war, of course, is coming. June 25th, 1950, North Korean troops launched a full-scale invasion of the South. After five years of simmering tensions on the Korean Peninsula, the Korean War begins. Early on a Sunday morning, North Korean forces numbering somewhere between 75 and 100,000 troops storm across the 38th parallel in a fierce, well-coordinated attack that stuns both the South Korean defenders and their American advisors. The NKPA has between 150 and 200,000 troops organized into 10 infantry divisions, one tank division, one air force division. North Korean army, well-disciplined, well-trained, well-equipped, undertaking a blitzkrieg-style invasion using T-34 tanks supported by artillery. Rhee's forces in the South Korean army, by contrast, frightened, confused, and seemed inclined to flee the battlefield at any provocation. They had no tanks, no anti-tank weapons, something the U.S. had made sure of, and they were quickly overwhelmed. And that makes me picture, for whatever reason, like very, very small South Korean men, frail, really, wearing like camo shorts, flip-flops, tank tops. Only weapons are slingshots. While some of them have ball bearings to shoot, most of them just have marbles. You know, maybe some rocks they can find. Holding their ammo and fanny packs. And then when fucking giant North Korean soldiers with machine guns and tanks and more come down, they squeak <laughs> like a little younger and they run haphazardly in any direction, not towards the North Koreans. You know, maybe they have a, a, one of those old Warner Brothers cartoon reactions, like their eyes literally pop out of their heads. Steam comes out of their ears when they see the approach of North Koreans. Ah-ooga! You know, it's like David versus Goliath. If David would have squealed, turned and ran away as fast as possible. And I don't blame him. They didn't have the fucking weapons. Ambassador John J. Muccio uh, or Muccio, a Jonathan Muccio, fired off a cable to get Washington's attention. It would appear from the nature of the attack and the manner it was launched that it constitutes an all-out offensive against the Republic, the Republic of Korea. Yeah, sure did. President Truman, who had gone home to Missouri for the weekend, hurried back to the Capitol now. After meeting with his national security advisors, he had U.S. Ambassador Warren Austin recommend to the U.N. Security Council that members of the United Nations furnish such assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repeal the armed attack 
and restore international peace and security in the area. In London, UK Prime Minister Clement Attlee read Truman's resolution to the House of Commons. The North Korean attack, Attlee said, is naked aggression and must be stopped. He said the British representative at the Security Council had been instructed to support the American resolution. Fortunately for the U.S., Jacob Malik, the Soviet representative, was boycotting the Security Council at the time of... uh, at the time, in protest of the fact that the communist China hadn't given a seat, with Malik absent uh, from the meeting where he could have exercised a veto, right? The motion is now passed. June 28th, the North Korean army proceeds south, intent on capturing Seoul. 90,000 plus North Koreans leave devastated towns in their wake as they capture uh, Ujibu, a highway center 30 miles north of Seoul, and soon they will progress into the city. And don't get caught up on the exact number of troops, it fluctuates quite a bit from source to source. North Koreans, uh, Soviets, uh, not known for being honest and sharing, uh, you know, information. South Koreans not doing a good job of repelling them. Early that morning, the main bridges over the Han River, crucial to get into Seoul, are blown up by the ROK army. Uh, engineers gave no warning to military per- personnel and civilian refugees crossing the bridges. Uh-oh. Not only were hundreds of civilians killed, but the ROKs had also trapped 44,000 of their own men north of the river. So pretty big fuck up. Soon the North Koreans are at Seoul, but the North Koreans did not accomplish their goal of quick surrender by the regovernment and the disintegration of the South Korean army. Instead, remnants of the Seoul area South Korean forces formed a defensive line now south of the Han River. Still, if the South was to stave off a total collapse, it would need help from the U.S. armed forces and quickly. And the U.S. would, of course, help. And to do so, they needed to, uh, you know, rapidly build their forces back up. Truly concerned that this was the beginning of a planned communist takeover of the fucking world, Truman ordered the U.S. to provide assistance with air and land forces in Korea. Truman ordered the U.S. 7th Fleet to prevent any attack on Formosa and strengthen the U.S. uh, forces in the Philippines. Carrier-based planes of the U.S. Navy and Marines, Air Force fighters, including F-51 Mustangs, now began to fly missions in support of South Koreans. Uh, The the South Koreans, with the U.S.'s help, will dominate the skies for the entirety of this conflict. In Japan, Douglas MacArthur, the decorated World War II hero who had been overseeing the occupation of Japan, decided to see the situation for himself. He told his staff, the only way to judge a fight is to see the troops in action. And true to his word, he took off from Tokyo's Haneda Airport, headed for Korea in his personal plane, the Bataan, along with Major General Edward M. Almond, his chief of staff, Major General E.K. Wright, his operations officer, and uh, Lieutenant General George E. Stratemeyer, his air chief. MacArthur was shocked by what he found. The situation was beyond chaotic. Streams of refugees flowing south, Shattered ROK army units unable to form solid defensive lines. Although one ROK division was digging in along the line of the Han River, it was clear it couldn't hold its position long. MacArthur immediately wrote to Washington, the only assurance for the holding of the present line and the ability to regain later the lost ground is through the introduction of U.S. ground combat forces into the Korean battle area. To continue to utilize the forces of our air and navy without an effective ground element cannot be decisive. He urged the immediate deployment of an American regimental combat team, followed by further buildup from 8th Army divisions presently in Japan. Truman and his officials approved the sending of two divisions to Korea from Japan and establishing a naval blockade of North Korea. At a press conference, Truman uh, was also asked if the country was at war, and he replied, no, we are not at war, right? Big fucking triggering word at this point. Uh, The follow-up question was, would it be possible to call this a police action under the United Nations? And Truman said, yes, that is exactly what it amounts to. A police action taken to help the UN repel a bunch of bandits. Bandits! Gosh dang bandits have scurried their weasley little bandit bottoms down beneath the 38th parallel. 
And now they're up to all kinds of uh, uh, hijinks and shenanigans and tomfoolery. Oh, my lanta. If you only knew what kinds of mischief and horseplay these bandits have been getting into. We've also had reports that the bandits are not operating alone. They may very well be in cahoots with rascals. Clowning around, getting into monkey business. Sorry, I just love that he said the word bandits. Uh, later, American GIs would quote the term police action with grim irony. Basically, like, get the fuck out of here. Police action my ass. Uh, following passage of the Security Council resolution, the United Nations Command was established with Douglas MacArthur as its first commander general headquarters. Or, yeah. Far East Command then became the principal part of general headquarters, United Nations Command. All these lengthy terms. Other nations asked to lend all possible support. MacArthur was ready to fucking go. And he ordered Walt H. Walker, commander of the 8th Army, to dispatch a reinforced battalion combat team to Korea without delay. Yeah, yeah, get over there. But unfortunately, uh, that battalion uh, didn't exist. It would have to be cobbled together. Walker called on Major General William F. Dean. Oh, fucking Billy Dean. Commander of the 24th Infantry Division, the force headquarters closest to Korea. Dean, in turn, gave the mission to Colonel Richard Big Six Stevens. 47-year-old barrel-chested commander of the Gimlets, the 21st Infantry Regiment. Fucking Dick Big Six Stevens on the case. Late on the night of June 30th, Stevens called Lieutenant Colonel Brad Smith, commander of the regiment's 1st Battalion. Said the lid is blown off. So get your clothes and report to the CP, the command post. When the 34-year-old Smith arrived, Stevens told him to prepare rifle companies B and C from his battalion for immediate movement to the uh, uh, Ituzika. Oh my gosh, Ituzuki. There we go. Itazuki, Itazuki Air Base. Couldn't find a pronunciation guide for that one. Kind of guessing. Uh, these poor bastards. Many of them just got done doing so much to save the free world from Hitler, and now they're dealing with this. Stevens would grab men from other units to bring those companies up to strength. Also beefed up Smith with some heavy weapons, plus a communications section and a medical section. In addition, a detachment from the 52nd Field Artillery Battalion would link up with them in Korea. Excuse me. Uh, early the next morning, when the newly created Task Force Smith... Uh, arrived at Itazuki, its crew cut division commander, 50-year-old William F. Bill Dean, was there to meet them. Again, Billy fucking Dean, son of Jimmy, prince to a sausage fortune, or not. Uh, but he was a war hero. Dude received all kinds of military honors following the war. Ticker tape parades, statues, lots of shit. All very much deserved. One of America's best. When you get to Pusan, Dean told Smith, head for Taijon. We want to stop the North Koreans as far from Pusan as we can, block the main road as far north as possible, contact General Church. If you can't locate him, go to Taijon and beyond if you can. Sorry I can't give you more information, but that's all I've got. And he fucking whopped him in the nuts. Go on, get here, you rascal! Maybe. The task force was shuttled in Air Force C-54 Skymasters, four engine transport aircrafts, tired but sturdy veterans of World War II, to an airfield near Pusan at the southeastern tip of the peninsula. The heavily loaded Skymasters tore up the dirt airstrip as well as the airlift, though. Yep. Cutting Smith's uh, heavy firepower in half and reducing his force from 440 to 406. So, shit. As the Americans traveled in vehicles to the Pusan rail station, now cheering crowds lined the streets and waved banners, flags, and streamers. That evening at the rail yard, a Korean band created an almost holiday-like atmosphere. But then the mood quickly dampened when a train loaded with South Korean casualties pulled in. My God, someone said, maybe there's a real war on. But mostly there was a feeling of real confidence, a belief that the North Koreans would back off once they realized that the Americans had entered the fight. I mean, that is pretty fucking cool that the American military inspired that kind of confidence. Arriving at Taijon, Smith met with General Church, pushing uh, through swarms of refugees. The task force then headed north. Smith selected a defensive position just north of San, 
a place where the main highway ran through his saddle and descended into a long valley. He could see all the way to Suwon, uh, eight miles to the northwest, and would cover by fire both the highway and nearby rail line. Early in the morning of July 5th, 1950, Smith looked through his binoculars, saw in the distance a column of 33 Soviet tanks mounting powerful 85-millimeter cannons. The Americans had no planes to bomb them at this moment or anti-tank mines, so they had to rely on their 105-millimeter artillery, recoilless rifles, and bazookas. And it wasn't enough. None of their weapons could penetrate the tank's thick armor. So the tanks just kept coming, tearing up the telephone wire, laid alongside the road, destroying landmine commu- or landline communication with the rear. It was heartbreaking, recalled one veteran, to watch those men firing point-blank and doing little damage. Rockets hit the tanks and the, tra- and the tracks, turrets, and bogies. Still couldn't stop them. Imagine that, getting a clear first strike on the enemy, outmaneuvering them, outfighting them, nailing tough shot after tough shot, and it doesn't do shit. You just can't compete with those gosh dang bandit rascal war machines. At about 11 in the morning, lookout spotted more movement on the road. Three enemy tanks led a column of trucks carrying NKPA, North Korean People's Army regiments, between 4,000 and 5,000 men. The task force opened up with everything it had. Trucks burst into flames. Men were blown into the air, blasted into roadside ditches. The enemy column came to an abrupt halt and soon crowds of infantry began to deploy. Ammunition soon ran low and Smith had to give an order to withdraw, having sustained somewhere between 30 and 40 casualties. Cohesion was soon lost. Single or in small groups, men took to the paddy fields or tried to follow the line of the nearby railroad track. As they did, they dodged machine gun and mortar fire or didn't and were killed. Eventually, Smith assembled about 250 members of a task force, many of whom had been wounded. The others had been either killed or captured. About 34 would die in North Korean prison camps. On a macro level, as the North Korean offense, uh, offensive continued, remnants of the ROK army were offering resistance along a wide but thinly held front. By now, more 24th Division units were arriving in Korea and taking positions along the crucial highway, beginning at, the, uh, beginning at Seoul and running south to Pyongtak, uh, Chochiwon, Taijon, and Taegu. They tried in vain to stop the NKPA advance, first at Pyongtak on July 5th and 6th, then at uh, Chuchon, or Chunan on July 7th and 8th. Meanwhile, the division's 21st Infantry Regiment taking heavy losses at Chunwai. At one point, it gained some lost ground in a counterattack, and for the very first time, the Americans discovered a communist atrocity, something that would become too familiar in the days ahead. Right? There would be more overall atrocities committed by South Korea, actually, but this time, blood is on North Korea's hands. Six American GIs, their hands first tied up with barbed wire, have been shot in the head. At another site, civilian bodies found in a ditch. July 11th, the Gimlets are down to 1,100 men, fewer than half the number that arrived from Japan. Jeez. The last of Dean's regiments to arrive was the 19th Infantry, known as the Rock of Chickamauga. Dean told the men to set up at the Sum River. They hoped to buy some time for others to arrive. Engineers blew up the Kim River bridges where weary GIs waited for the coming attack but the Americans were not able to hold. North Korean troops used barges to cross the river, and the Americans were forced to retreat. The North Korean army was proving formidable and consistent. Their pattern was to attack while the other half of the force took blocking positions in the rear, inflicting heavy casualties when the Americans tried to withdraw. The U.S. Navy and Air Force continued to batter the enemy, performing attacks on NKPA armor, transport, and infantry, but tragically, friendly airstrikes went awry occasionally, resulting in casualties amongst either the Americans or South Korean allies. Two more American divisions arrived, the 25th Infantry and the 1st Cavalry, and General Walker uh, had set up an 8th Army headquarters. But Dean's 24th Division was still bearing the brunt of the fighting and taking the losses. Dean himself was part of the action, even knocked out an enemy tank with a fucking rocket launcher. Uh, A statue 
at the Battle of Taijon Memorial in Daejeon, South Korea, will uh, later memorialize this. After knocking out that tank, I wonder if Dean yelled some version of, oh, fuck yeah, bro, or if it was more like bandit type talk. I'm, I'm guessing language was as coarse back then in moments like that as it is now. But later that day, the Americans were driven out of Taijon in disorder, and Dean became separated from his men and would then spend 36 straight days wandering around in the wilderness with no food, trying to get back to friendly lines. 36 days. Dude started out weighing 210 pounds, ended up weighing 130. He was ultimately led into an ambush where he tried to blast the enemy away with a pistol, but was captured. And then he would spend the next three years as a North Korean prisoner of war, refusing to divulge sensitive information to the enemy, no matter what they did to him. He even attempted suicide to make sure that no amount of torture would make him talk. Around the time of Dean's capture, the police action, not going great for the Americans. Near Osan, along the Kum River, through uh, Taijan and south to Taigu, U.S. soldiers fought and died and some fled. Weakened by inadequate weapons, limited numbers, and uncertain leadership, U.S. troops were frequently beset by streams of refugees fleeing south, which increased the threat of guerrilla infiltration due to the strong possibility that some of these refugees were actually communist insurgents. Also, it was one of the hottest and driest summers on record, and desperately thirsty American soldiers were often forced to drink water from rice paddies that had been fertilized with human shit. Not kidding. As a result, a lot of U.S. soldiers literally blew their buttholes off due to the devastating effects of cholera. Many of McGill's pop, rest in peace, Donovan McGill, heard in North Korea. And if you get that old ridiculous reference, thank you for still listening after all these years. Uh, no, nobody blew their buttholes off, but some did get sick and died. Uh, for real dangerous intestinal disease, other illnesses, a constant threat. As July drew to a close, ROK Army units were in the east, in the mountains, and along the coast. Between July 20th and 30th, the ROK 3rd Division made one of the few successful holding actions. Uh, this, But slowly, they were beginning to be pushed back. As the NKPA drove down the West Coast, it tried to eliminate potential opposition by murdering civil servants. Also began an assault on Chinju, uh, positioning themselves to drive on Pusan and cut off all UN forces in Korea. Moving to block them were the 19th Infantry Chicks, right? Chick short for Chickamauga, from the Rock of Chickamauga, and two battalions of the 29th Infantry Regiment, which were newly arrived from Japan. 700 men from the 29th Infantry reached the Hadong Pass near Jinju. Uh, I've seen it, Chinju and Jinju, on July 26, 1950, but they ran into an ambush and were soon overwhelmed, outnumbered many times over, and it was a massacre. Some fought their way out, but three to 400 died. Meanwhile, the ROK army was falling back on the eastern flank in the central sector. The enemy was heading for Taigu, and in the southwest, Chinju had fallen. If Masan were to fall, the North Koreans would have a straight shot to Busan. Situation was grim. But on July 31st, the 9th Regiment of the U.S. 2nd Infantry Division began to land at Pusan. Three days later, the 1st Marine Provisional Brigade arrived from Camp Pendleton, California. General Walton Harris Walker planned to use the Nakdong River as a barrier and with the new troops, finally had a defensible line. Falling back, no longer seen as a viable option, further retreat would lead to disaster, so Walker would issue his famous Stand or Die order. This dude was another badass motherfucker. This dude, a war hero in World War I and again in World War II, requested and was granted permission to serve under General Patton in World War II, won numerous awards for leading from the front, right? Fearlessly exposing himself time and time again to enemy fire to inspire his troops to make dangerous movements. He'd win a distinguished service cross for extraordinary heroism in the Korean War as well. So three wars, he was a war hero. Uh, and it won it again for personally exposing himself to enemy fire 
to help his troops win the war, to do a whole suck on that man of steel. And now in Korea, this guy said, a retreat to Pusan would be one of the greatest bloodbaths in American history. We must fight until the end. If some of us must die, we will die fighting together. Any man who gives ground may be personally responsible for the death of thousands of his comrades. I want everybody to understand that we are going to hold this line. We are going to win. That's a fucking badass speech. Imagine hearing that. Imagine feeling the pressure of knowing that if you try and leave to save your life, you might be killing others, right? Directly responsible for the death of hundreds or or thousands of others. And if you're hearing that come from someone who doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk, the Americans took General Walker's speech to heart. They would hold the line, what became known as the Pusan Perimeter. The line extended about 100 miles to the north and south, about 50 miles east to west, and was anchored on the port city of Pusan. Soon the North Koreans were attacking the line at several points. Fortunately, the arrival of new units, such as the Marine Brigade, Brigade, uh, allowed the 8th Army to not just defend, but also to begin mounting a few limited offensives. Along the southern coast in the Masan sector, Task Force Keene, named for its commander, Major General William B. Keene, uh, commanding general of the 25th Division and one of the key planners of World War II's D-Day, attacked with elements of the 25th Division, the 1st Provisional Mar- Marine Brigade, and the 5th Regimental Combat Team newly arrived from Hawaii. But then several thousand enemy soldiers attacked in force and drove a wedge between Keene's two forces. The columns were brought to a halt with the 555th Field Artillery Battalion losing six of its guns, the 90th Field Artillery Battalion losing five, and about 300 men from both outfits killed. Task Force Keene had no choice but to withdraw. But the operation produced some significant results. Enemy commanders were racing against time, hoping to capture Pusan before the UN forces became too strong. The task force stopped the southern prong of the offensive and severely interfered with with the communist timetable. Soon, Americans' control of the skies would be even more important, as aircraft provided essential backup for ground units, while also destroying bridges and roads. And now the U.S.'s tanks arrive. Uh, They came from Fort Knox, men of the 70th Tank Battalion equipped with M26 Pershings mounted with 90mm guns. This is huge. On August 8th, the penetration by the NKPA 4th Division resulted in what became known as the First Battle of Nakdong Bulge. Everyone was thrown into the fight, even engineers. After 10 days of heavy fighting, the 24th Infantry Division, reinforced by the 1st Marine Provisional Brigade, were able to contain the enemy. By August 19th, the NKPA 4th Division had been nearly destroyed. They'd lose around 1,200 men compared to the U.S. losing around 600 Marines. Elsewhere along the perimeter, some of the heaviest fighting involved the 1st Cavalry Division, commanded by Major General Hobart Hap Gay. They were responsible for a front 35 miles long, helped by the 1st Battalion, 23rd Infantry Regiment of Major General Lawrence Dutch Kaiser's 2nd Division. On August 15, 1950, American prisoners were captured on the now infamous Hill 303 next to the Nakdong River. 41 prisoners murdered by North Korean troops. The exact details of the massacre are unknown. What we do know is based on the accounts of four U.S. soldiers who survived. Uh, What we know, according to survivor accounts, is that before dawn on August 15th, the H Company Mortar Platoon became aware of enemy activity near Hill 303. So many fucking hills. Uh, The platoon leader telephoned G Company, 5th Cavalry, which informed him a platoon of 60 ROK troops would come to reinforce the mortar platoon. Later in the morning, the platoon saw two KPA T-34s followed by 200 or more enemy soldiers on the road below. A little later, a group of Koreans appeared on the slope. A patrol going to meet the climbing Korean troops called out and received, in reply, a blast of gunfire from automatic weapons. The mortar platoon leader, Lieutenant Jack Hudspeth, believed they were friendly, 
Some of the Americans realized that the advancing troops were KPA and were going to fire upon them, according to survivors. Privates Fred Ryan and Roy Manring, who gave accounts when they revisited their old mortar position many years later in 1999. Hudspeth ordered them not to fire, threatened them with a court-martial if they did. So this guy, unfortunately, fucks up. Thinks that they're friendly, they're not friendly. Uh, The rest of the watching Americans, not convinced that the new arrivals are enemy soldiers until the red stars become visible on their field caps. Damn it. By that time, they're very close to U.S. positions. The KPA troops came right up to the foxholes without either side firing a shot. Hudspeth ordered his platoon to then surrender without a fight. It was far outnumbered and now outgunned. They didn't have any superior position. The KPA quickly took the mortarmen captive. KPA troops then marched their prisoners down the hill after taking weapons and valuables. In a nearby orchard, they tie the prisoners' hands behind their backs, take some of their clothing, remove their shoes, tell them that they'll be sent to the prisoner war camp in Seoul if they behave well. During their first night of captivity, the KPA give the American prisoners water, a little bit of fruit, like one apple for every four guys kind of shit, cigarettes. Uh, During the night, two of the Americans loosened their bindings, caused a brief commotion. KPA soldiers threatened to shoot the Americans, but according to one survivor's account, a KPA officer shot one of his own men for threatening that. So at this point, it sounds like they are going to take him to Seoul. Things are going to change, though. Two captured American officers, Lieutenant Hudspeth, the platoon leader of the mortar platoon, and Lieutenant Cecil Newman, who was a forward artillery observer, were seen conferring with with each other about an escape plan, according to Private Fred Ryan. And then both escaped during the night, but then were quickly captured and executed. The KPA attempted to keep the Americans hidden during the day, moved them by night, but attacks by U.S. forces made that difficult. Next day, August 16th, the prisoners were moved with their guards, Later that day, other U.S. forces began to assault Hill 303 to retake the position. B Company and several U.S. tanks tried a second time to retake the hill, uh, now estimated to contain a 700-man battalion. That night, G Company succeeded in escaping from Hill 303. Guards took away five of the American prisoners. Others did not know what became of them. 2 p.m. on August 17th, a U.N. airstrike takes place, attacking the hill with napalm, bombs, rockets, and machine guns. A KPA officer said the U.S. soldiers were closing in on them and could not continue to hold the prisoners. Officer ordered the men to be executed. And now the KPA fired into the Americans in the gully. Only four would survive by hiding under dead bodies. The 5th Cavalry Regiment quickly discovered the bodies of the prisoners with machine gun wounds, hands still bound behind their backs. 1st Cavalry troops later named the area Atrocity Hill. And it is an atrocity and it's fucked up. But also, you know, this is war. If you were fighting... And you knew that continuing to keep moving with POWs greatly increased the likelihood you would be killed, right? Hindered your movement. Also knew if you released the men, they would 100% be given weapons again, jump right back into fighting and try and kill you. What would you do? Tougher call, I imagine, than some make it out to be. Uh, Meanwhile, more heavy fighting was taking place west of Taigu along a critical highway in a narrow valley that became known as the Bowling Alley. Over a six-day period from August 15th to the 20th, the 27th Infantry Regiment Wolfhounds pretty fucking pretty cool name uh, of the u.s 25th infantry division repelled a series of attacks that spelled out serious losses for the enemy both in troops and equipment uh, many regiments also got new manpower in the form of recruits known as kat usas uh, korean augmentations to the u.s army who were paired up like field trip buddies with american soldiers despite the language barrier the experiment was successful uh, they shorted the perimeter while the north korean army failed to press forward New recruits also came in the form of homeless orphans, sadly, separating uh, from the stream of refugees to be, quote-unquote, adopted by compassionate Americans. Dressed in cut-down GI uniforms, the youngsters became unofficial members of the American combat units they followed. Man. Training centers and schools were set up to build new divisions, NCO ranks, filled back up. All the while, the North Korean army continued to lose men to gunfire and disease. 
By mid-August, 141,000 troops were inside the perimeter, while the North Koreans were down to about 70,000. For psychological and not necessarily realistic reasons, Kim Il-sung ordered his commanders to take Pusan on August 15th, the anniversary of Japanese surrender in World War II. That meant that the North Koreans ran themselves ragged trying to accomplish the goal, resulted in the second battle of Nakdong Bulge. And it was all for nothing. North Koreans uh, beaten back decisively. By mid-September, the tide had turned. Not only had the UN forces strengthened, but the enemy had made serious mistakes. They dissipated their forces in a series of separate offensives, each trying desperately to reach Pusan, none of them succeeding. The Pusan perimeter continued to hold. Also in mid-September, the entire strategic balance of the war was shifted by the sudden appearance of the ex-Corps at uh, Incheon. So who the hell are they? It went back to MacArthur's belief that he couldn't win the war without an amphibious landing deep behind enemy lines. It was his grand plan to isolate the battlefield by use of air power to seal off supply routes, then landing at Incheon and cutting off enemy forces to the south. The 8th Army would then advance north and close the pinchers. He had started to think about a landing as early as July, but uh, simply didn't have enough forces now that it changed. He made an impassioned plea to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, arguing that the Soviet Union wouldn't pull punches, so neither should they. Half measures were not going to fucking cut it. Joint, Joint Chiefs, not so sure. It was risky. For one thing, the tidal range, the difference between low and high tides, exceeded 30 feet, one of the widest ranges in the world. Also, numerous islands covered the seaward approaches. Uh, the largest of these, uh, Wol Mido, was fortified by North Korea. Uh, you know, or, excuse me, the, if the largest of these, Wol Mido, uh, were fortified by North Korea, which it was, they could easily blast the boats out of the water. And the proposed channel was narrow and treacherous with a current of five to six knots. So this was a no-go for the Navy. One admiral said, we drew up a list of every natural and geographic handicap to a landing, and Inchon had had all of them. Man, sorry, I can't, keep, I can't stop fucking burping. I had some weird little protein drink that my body's rejecting. Uh, actually, I think I had way too much coffee. Uh, MacArthur heard all this and didn't give a gosh dang freaking hex shoot. He wasn't there to listen. He was there to kick some commie bandit rascal bottom. Somewhat reluctantly, the Joint Chief of Staffs uh, approved MacArthur's plan. Douglas MacArthur, five-star general nominated for the Medal of Honor three different times, received it for his service in the Philippines campaign of World War II. Son of another general and another Medal of Honor winner. Dude was 70 years old at this point. He, he, he ended up putting in 52 years of military service and he had a 46-inch cock, went, went limp, and each of his balls weighed roughly 1,000 tons. Uh, but for real, he's a living legend at this point. For the Corps of his landing force, he and the Joint Chiefs of Staff select the 1st Marine Division and 8th Army's remaining Infantry Division, the 7th. As the force developed, it also included South Korean Marine and Infantry units and an assortment of U.S. support troops. The entire force was designated X-Corps and was uh, commanded by Major General Edward M. Almond, MacArthur's Chief of Staff. 1st Marines would bombard uh, Womido, destroying North Korea's outpost there. They scorched the island with napalm. Then the U.S. cruisers Toledo and Rochester arrived began blasting away with 8-inch main batteries, um, with their 8-inch main batteries. Joining the bombardment were two Royal Navy cruisers, the Kenya and the Jamaica, followed by a six-ship destroyer squadron, and they all pounded the island mercilessly. MacArthur had scouted the island previously to gain necessary recon to carry out the attacks. He did it on a fucking jet ski, solo. His only weapon, a steel fucking boomerang fortified with razors. He had two-inch thick calluses covering his man hands allowing him to easily catch his razor boomerang when it returned to his hand after lopping off enemy heads. He took off somewhere between 500 and 1,000 heads on the island to psychologically break them down before heavy, heavier attacks began. Or, or something. Or he did something that might or might not have involved uh, boomerangs. 
uh, or jet ski. After bombarding the island, the rest of the X-Corps was en route. The Marines were coming from Kobe and the Army uh, from Yokohama, or Yokohama, both in Japan. Conditions on board the ships were crowded and uncomfortable, but the true misery had not yet arrived. During the second day at sea, the convoy ran into Typhoon Kazia, a storm with 125-mile-per-hour winds, but they still made it. At 6.30 in the morning on September 15th, a lot of them got motion sickness, which is probably the least of their problems. I doubt anybody was really worried about that being, uh, uh, you know, something to be concerned about in light of everything else they have. Uh, 6.30 in the morning on September 15th, the 3rd Battalion of Colonel Ray Murray's 5th Marines stormed ashore at Walmido. Uh, within 45 minutes, the Marines had the island under their control. 11 hours later, the main assault force heads for Inchon. Murray's other two battalions, followed by ROK Marines, went in on the left at Red Beach. Three battalions belonging to Colonel Lewis Chesty motherfucking Pullers. First Marine Regiment, right? I still love that old Chesty Puller suck. Uh, aimed for Blue Beach on the right. Chesty Puller, most decorated Marine in American history. Bojangles is saluting me right now with a tear in his eye and a rock hard boner, which, you know, is making me really uncomfortable. Uh, hearing about Chesty Puller, fighting communists has him incredibly excited. As soon as the landing crafts hit the stone sea walls, ladders and grappling hooks were thrown out and Marines scrambled up and over. By midnight, the mission was a definite success. 13,000 Marines were ashore and casualties had been light. MacArthur's gamble had paid off. 24 hours later, the high ground east of Inchon was secured. ROK Marines moved in to mop up. On the evening of September 16th, Marine Major General Oliver P. Smith established his command post east of Inchon. Uh, the Marines then pushed uh, on in two columns that followed the line of the Inchon Seoul Highway. Enemy planes dropped 500-pound bombs and napalm, destroying tanks, scattering the infantry. On the left, Murray's 5th Marines headed for Kimpo Airfield and the Han River just beyond. On the right, Puller's 1st Marines headed towards Yongdungpo, Seoul's large, Seoul's large industrial suburb on the south bank of the Han. Enemy tanks approached, backed up by about 250 North Korean infantrymen. A fierce firefight commenced. Uh, Richard Carey, bonus dick box, check now. Took his squad around an enemy flank. As he emerged from around a bend, he came face to face with the North Korean commander. Instinctively, uh, Carey took out his pistol. The commander raised his hands by reflex. Carey opened fire. At first, he thought he killed the commander, but it turned out he had merely shot his belt off. My God. The other guy was otherwise unharmed. The commander stunned and maybe feeling probably some piping hot fresh peanut butter sliding down his leg. Uh, surrendered his entire balloon. What a moment that guy had. Meanwhile, all around them, bullets sprayed out as both sides fought to control the crucial road. When all was said and done, 200 North Korean troops lay dead. Their tanks lay in smoldering ruins. The Marines, shaken but victorious, counted their dead, treated their wounded, and secured the airfield. By the afternoon of September 18th, Brigadier General Thomas Cushman's Marine Air Group 33 arrived safely, now at Gimpo from Japan. Other elements of Ned Allman's X-Corps now coming ashore. The last of the regiments landed on the 17th, 18th, and 19th. Soon there were enough forces to take Seoul back from the north. The 5th Marines lined up along the rail lines west of the city, uh, paralleling the Han River. Simultaneously, Marines battled North Korean troops along the Han River in uh, Yongdungpo. Both areas sustained heavy casualties, but they were still determined to take Seoul. With the airport and main highway now secured, the 32nd Infantry crossed the Han River September 25th in amphibious landing craft. South Korea's 17th Regiment crossed behind them. At the same time, the 7th Marine Division crossed the river further west of the city and moved to shut off North Korean supply routes from the north. By late in the day, Seoul was surrounded. But North Korean soldiers and civilian sympathizers still controlled many urban blocks and were not about to give up the city without a fierce fight. UN troops went through the city block by block, building by building, 
and engaged in bloody street fighting and hand-to-hand combat with their determined enemies. Marines, Felix Del, uh, Del Giduce, Myron Jack, none of these guys can just have like a name like fucking Smith. Myron Jack, Leslie something, Edward and Edward Hoth. Thanks, Ed. Uh, remember fighting through those streets, saying years later, we took casualties and the North Koreans were pretty well entrenched. Seoul was demolished. We were street fighting. It was pretty tough. We lost some people there. We divided down the main street. It was a fight. 29th Infantry Regiment soldier Charles Gebhardt uh, recalled the scene in Seoul saying the city was in rubble. To think this had been a big city. There wasn't much left. The only thing intact was the university. Otherwise, everything else was gone. Truthfully, I think I may have become a pacifist at that time because I couldn't see people living under such conditions. On the 27th, the Marines captured the French embassy and raised the American flag over it. Then they moved on to the Soviet embassy, took down the Soviet flag, replaced it with the stars and stripes. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Stalin, not happy. He was like, Yankee scum fuck. You ruined the war plan. For this, I make Uncle Sam suck commie dick cock penis wiener. But Uncle Sam wouldn't do that, you guys. Uncle Sam wouldn't suck. They're commie dick cock penis wieners. Korea's government headquarters was also secured with South Korea's national flag as fighting raged around it. American soldier Luther, Luther Liguiri uh, raised the stars and stripes over Seoul's American consulate. Seoul finally under the command and control now of UN forces. This is huge. Three months after being invaded by the North, South Korea had its capital back. Three, uh, 113 American troops killed along with 50 additional South Korean troops. Thousands of North Korean troops died. Uh, the Americans had promised the South Koreans that they would be there for them. And they were. I imagine everyone present at the raising of the American flag at the American consulate singing together, hands joined in unison. I'll be there for you these five words i swear to you when you breathe i want to be the air for you i'll be there for you i'd live and i'd die for you i'll steal the sun from the sky for you words can't say what love can do i'll be there for you what if i just sang the whole fucking song (laughs) they might have sung something like that you weren't there you were, well, you probably weren't there. You might have been there. There's a chance that a few of you could have been there, but probably not. Uh, they probably didn't sing that because uh, Bon Jovi didn't release it until 1998. You have to admit, that one does kind of work. I'm sure some of you are pretty fucking sick of Bon Jovi gag. But think, but think about this if you're a history lover. Now, possibly for the rest of your life, whenever you hear a Bon Jovi song, you'll also remember random facts about the Korean War. Forgotten no more. You son of a bitch. Thanks to John motherfucking Bon Jovi. New Jersey's favorite son. Don't tell Bruce Springsteen. Uh, back to non-suck first reality now. General MacArthur and South Korea's President Syngman Rhee flew triumphantly into Kimpo, then traveled in the center of town for a military ceremony at the National Assembly Hall. There, MacArthur invoked God to declare the city free, led the gathered crowd in a recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Brushing back tears, Rhee thanked the American Marines who had fought so bravely to retake the city. Then South Korean troops marched victoriously through the streets of their liberated capital. But some parts of the plan had not gone as expected. For example, the commanders assumed that the Incheon landing would demoralize communist troops in the South, but it didn't because their communist officers uh, never told them that that happened. As the 24th Division and 1st Cavalry moved north to Seoul, they passed burned out vehicles, countless hundreds of enemy bodies, uh, abandoned equipment, entire NKPA units were surrendering but thousands of North Koreans would take to the hills. 
As the communists headed north, they took thousands of South Koreans with them as hostages and slave laborers and left additional thousands executed in their wake. Most infam infamously at Taijon, where some 5,000 civilians were massacred. Man, back in July in Taijon, uh, between 1,800 and 7,000 suspected communist civilians had been massacred by the South Koreans. Part of the 60,000 to 200,000 political prisoners uh, executed by the South Korean state during the war. So many atrocities committed by both sides. Around this time, too, news came in from Washington that President Truman had replaced Secretary of Defense, Lewis Johnson. New secretary was esteemed General George C. Marshall. Uh, Johnson, not missed, not popular with the military. Uh, shortly before the Korean War, he allegedly had said, the Navy is on its way out. There's no reason for having a Navy and a Marine Corps. General Bradley tells me amphibious operations are a thing of the past. We'll never have any more amphibious operations. That does away with the Marine Corps. And the Air Force can do anything the Navy can do. So that does away with the Navy. So I'm no military tactician, but that guy sounds uh, pretty fucking stupid. Now that South Korea was almost entirely under UN control, political and military leaders had to decide, you know, what the next step will be. Should they declare victory and halt at the 38th parallel, forever giving up on the idea of a unified Korea, or should they march north and keep fighting? Re felt strongly that all of Korea must be unified. American military leaders also recognized the importance of destroying North Korea's military capability so they couldn't just, you know, come down in a few months or years and fuck shit up again. Also, General MacArthur had a raging war boner and needed release. Even before the Incheon landing, MacArthur had thought ahead to a campaign into North Korea. Uh, this dude loved to fucking battle. Uh, though his plans never went beyond establishing a line across the so-called waste to Korea. Well, not at this point. You'll find out by the end of the episode, he had some pretty outrageous plans. Uh, from Pyongyang in the West to Wonsan in the East. September 27th, the, uh, on September 27th, the Joint Chiefs finally gave him, or gave him, excuse, excuse me, gave him final authority to conduct operations north of the 38th parallel. And he came, uh, just a little bit, not enough to go flaccid. He was still so excited. I, lo I love MacArthur. This guy is, uh, this guy is uh, amazing. At 46 years old, I, I feel like a silly little boy compared to uh, men like him. However, he was instructed to limit operations in the event of Russian or Chinese intervention. For the United Nations Command, on the other hand, the war aim was now expanded. As announced by the UN General Assembly on October 7th, it was to include the occupation of all of North Korea, knock, knock, knock it on China and Russia's door, and the elimination of the North Korean army as a threat to the political reconstruction of Korea as a single nation. Everyone expected the ex-corps to lead it, but MacArthur pulled them out, already planning another amphibious assault at Wonsan. Instead, uh, South Korean units crossed the parallel on October 1st, and U.S. Army units crossed on October 7th. ROK-1 Corps marched rapidly up the East Coast Highway, winning the race for Wonsan, but the 1st Marines would arrive soon after with the 7th Division going by road and rail all the way back to Pusan, boarding ships and traveling up the East Coast from there. Somewhat predictably, China didn't exactly love this. Premier uh, Joe Enlai told the Indian ambassador that if the U.S. entered North Korea, China would be forced to intervene. Uh, the Indians passed this along to the British, who then relayed it to Washington. Uh, weird little telephone game here. I don't know why Premier uh, Joe Enlai just couldn't talk to Washington directly. So that happens, and MacArthur does not give a single fuck. Even when uh, Joe said publicly that the Chinese people will not tolerate foreign aggression, nor will they supinely tolerate seeing their neighbors being savagely invaded by imperialists, he didn't flinch. President Truman was nervous, though, and he called a meeting with MacArthur to figure out what to do. That meeting took place on Wake Island, October 15th, 1950. 
During their discussion, Truman asked about the possibility of Chinese intervention, and MacArthur assured the president that since victory was won in Korea, there was little possibility of the Chinese coming in. Um, Even if they did, MacArthur said, he would defeat them with overwhelming air power. He said, quote, we will take our fighter jets and we will fist fuck their asses with them. And then President Truman said, you're goddamn right, we will. That's what I wanted to hear. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. We're going to fist fuck those bandits and their bandit buttholes with our fighter jets. Yes, sir. And then both guys whipped their boners out and slapped them together in a show of both aggression and solidarity. Or maybe a much more subdued version of that happened. Or probably not even that since those guys hated each other. Uh, The two men had no idea that Mao Zedong had already made the decision to intervene. As Truman headed back to Washington and MacArthur to Tokyo, elements of Lin Biao's 4th Field Army were already crossing the Yalu River in North Korea. Within days, four field armies of 30,000 each had crossed the Yalu. 120,000 trained soldiers. Uh Uh-oh. Simultaneously, UN troops were racing for the North Korean capital of Pyongyang. The winners would be the ROK 1st Division and the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division, uh, who captured the city on October 19th. As they proceeded north, they'd see atrocities beyond compare. At one place near a railroad tunnel, American POWs had been taken from a train and group supposedly to be fed. According to a survivor who'd escaped by pretending to be dead, the men had been systematically killed, many with rice bowls still in their hands, waiting to receive food. They had a lot of motivation by the time they reached the capital, and after capturing it, kept going, driving the Kim Il-sung government back towards the mountains. wonder how many times Kim Il-sung had to teleport. Too many, he couldn't also shoot wizard fireballs. That would have really helped him out. Kim established a new capital at uh, Shin Weiju on the Yalu River, opposite the Chinese city, opposite the Chinese city of Andung. Two other divisions, accompanied by Soviet advisors and air defense forces, struggled northwest towards the Yalu River and the Chinese border. The UN forces assumed that the North Korean army had lost its will to fight, and reality was awaiting rescue from China, and China was backed by the Soviets. Stalin promised to extend China's air defenses, manned by the Soviets, to a corridor above the Yalu, thus protecting air bases in Manchuria and hydroelectric plants on the river, also promised new Soviet weapons and arm. Armament, oh my gosh, armament, armament factories. Uh, and now there were thousands of Chinese soldiers on the border, ready to join up with North Koreans. Maybe if I would have sung that word in Bon Jovi's voice, I would have nailed it. I feel like I've been pronouncing him pretty well. Uh, Chinese People's Volunteer Force, CPVW, was commanded by General Peng Denhui, a veteran of 20 years of war against the Chinese nationalists and the Japanese. And there was also something else to worry about. Uh, MiG-15 jet fighters had appeared about North Korea flown by Soviet pilots masquerading as Chinese and Koreans. Within one week, they stopped most of the daytime raids in North Korea. U.S. Air Force immediately dispatched now a crack wing of F-86 Sabre jet interceptors to Japan, kicking off a two and a half year battle for air superiority, which the U.S. would win. Over the course of the war, the F-86s succeeded in allowing the Far East Air Forces, F-E-A-F, to conduct offensive air operations anywhere in North Korea. Also protected protected the Eighth Army from communist air attack. However, they were never never able to provide perfect protection for B-29s flying daylight raids into MiG Alley, a corridor in northwestern Korea where MiGs based near Andung, Manchuria, fiercely defended bridges and dams on the Yalu River. The uh, FIF also turned its fury on all standing structures that might shield the Chinese from the cold. Cities and towns all over North Korea went up in flames. Uh, and then soon a big battle would take place. October 25th, Chinese Communist forces launched their first phase offensive when north of Yunshan, the 6th ROK Division, was attacked by elements of the 50th Field Army. This attack was the first indication that China had entered the war. 
But American intelligence officers who wanted nothing more uh, than to believe that the war was almost over refused to see what was obvious. A few hours later, the 6th ROK Division was nearly wiped out. Farther west, meanwhile, on November 1st, the 21st Infantry Gimlets captured the village of Chong Godu, 18 miles from the Yalu River. That same day, at Yunshan, South Koreans and Americans were being cut off and surrounded by units of the CPVF, 39th Army. Before the fighting was over, the ROK 15th Infantry Regiment would be destroyed. But then the Chinese forces disappeared into the hills. Were they really gone? No, they were not. Uh, November 23rd, Thanksgiving soldiers dined on roast turkey, pumpkin pie, and wonderful rumors. They believed that they would, you know, there would be one more quick offensive to wrap up the war, and then everyone would soon be heading back to the States or Japan for victory parades. Next day, the 8th Army, though, kicked off its home, or excuse me, yeah, the next day, the 8th Army kicked off its home by Christmas offensive. General Walker proceeded cautiously so as not to leave anyone isolated. The X Corps and the U.S. 7th Division were already on the border. If all went to plan, they could drive all the Chinese back, cutting off anyone who straggled, but all did not go according to plan. On the evening of November 25th, the Chinese 13th Army Group launched its second phase offensive. They hit the weakest point, the 8th Division of 2nd Corps on the island flank. Screaming and blowing bugles, they shattered the 8th Division and sent it flying back in disorder. In this way, the ROK 7th and 6th Divisions also broken and overpowered. U.S. 2nd Infantry Division now found themselves with an open flank. In response, X Corps issued an amphibious and highly controversial attack order, one which seemed to assume that the Chinese forces opposing X Corps were of little consequence. The Marines would concentrate west of the Chosen River or Chosen Reservoir, and Task Force McLean from the Seventh Division would go into position east of Chosen. But forces would launch both forces would launch an attack on November twenty seventh. But that offensive was a small part of a bigger picture that was looking worse and worse and worse. Meanwhile, in the 8th Army sector, the Chinese offensive had already poured in, setting up roadblocks and seizing high ground. Walker had been forced to issue a general retreat. The 2nd Division acted as their rear guard, but a full Chinese division was waiting. The convoy was ambushed, with 3,000 men lost, plus all of the division vehicles. By December 5th, the 8th Army had abandoned Pyongyang. South of the capital, a new defensive line was set up. No one knew if it could hold. The Marines, meanwhile, were holding off the Chinese with that offensive they'd planned, After dark on the night of November 28th, in sub-zero weather and amid swirling snow, the Chinese launched heavy attacks from both the front and the flanks. One of the most brutal battles yet, the Americans virtually annihilated. Only 300 soldiers of 3,200 lived. Man, damn it. Uh, The Battle of Chosen Reservoir was horrific. Battle of Chosen Reservoir, regarded by some historians as the most brutal in modern warfare uh, by violence, casualty rate, weather conditions, and endurance. Over the course of 14 days, 17 Medals of Honor, 78 Service Cross Medals were awarded by the U.S., second most after World War II's Battle of the Bulge. A cold front sent temperatures down to 36 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. Yikes. By the end of the battle, more Chinese troops would die from the cold, would literally freeze to death, than die from combat and air raids. The Marines loaded their dead and wounded on trucks began a fighting retreat. By December 7th, they made it to Koh Tori. By this time, all of X Corps was pulling back and preparing to cut its losses, leave North Korea, and admit defeat. The U.S. Navy achieved a massive evacuation. They even managed to load 91,000 refugees, nearly as many civilians as troops. By the year's end, the remaining fighting U.N. forces were digging in along the 38th parallel. 8th Army also had a new commander. Walton Walker was killed instantly when his Jeep collided with an ROK truck on December 23, 1950. Man, his death was not at enemy hands. Dude was a fucking war hero in three wars. And then died because a, uh, a bad truck driver swerved out of their formation and 
ran into his truck. His replacement was the famed World War II paratrooper and eventual Presidential Medal of Freedom winner, Lieutenant General Matthew B. Ridgway. But what was everyone going to do now? MacArthur wanted to keep forces in North Korea, even though they'd been ambushed badly. Things looked dubious. Meanwhile, you know who was having a great time? Mao Zedong, heartened by the ease with which his forces had driven the UN forces out of North Korea. Mao Zedong uh, expanded his war aims to demand that the Chinese army unify all of Korea now, drive the Americans, uh, you know, these fucking puppets off the peninsula. Now UN forces are wondering if they should have just maybe stopped at the 30th parallel. MacArthur, though, still not worried, but many others are. Uh, Mao's enthusiasm then increased when the Chinese third with the uh, Chinese third offensive beginning on December 31st, when it retook Seoul for North Korea. Right? What a shitty place to live during all this, swinging back and forth between contrasting ideologies, constantly being you know stuck in the middle of urban warfare. It was already in rubble uh, in the previous battle. Now that it's had another one. South Korean non-communist leaders right back to where they had been in June. Chinese attacks centered on South Korean divisions, which were showing signs of defeat and ineptness. Lieutenant General Ridgway therefore had to rely in the short term upon his U.S. divisions, many of which had now gained units from other U.N. participants. In addition to two British Commonwealth brigades, they were fresh units from Turkey, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Greece, Colombia, Thailand, Ethiopia, and the Philippines. Operation Thunderbolt, not Thunder Tuck, uh, launched by Nine Corps and First Corps on January 25th, 1951, now do push the Chinese back north of the Han River. And then a pleased Douglas MacArthur arrives on his fucking jet ski, obviously, on January 28th to visit the front and confer with Ridgeway. The Chinese, now reinforced by a reborn North Korean army, launched their fourth offensive, February 11th, 1951. Again, the initial attacks strike ill-prepared South Korean divisions. Again, the UN forces give ground. Again, the 8th Army fights back, methodically crossing the 38th parallel after two months, pushing the Chinese and North Koreans back into North Korea. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth it goes. February 21st, 1951, another 8th Army offensive, Operation Killer, is underway. In his memoirs, Ridgway would later say that he chose that name to remind people the war was about killing. Maybe if they were reminded, he thought they would be more, uh, they would be more reluctant to get involved in one. Right? If the uh, fucking enemy hears that this is what's going on. Next, on March 7th, the Operation, operation Ripper begins with an advance across the Han River by 1 and 10 Corps. Chinese casualties continue to mount. Nevertheless, UN forces capture Seoul back from the enemy on March 14th. Another time. Fourth and final time, it would change hands. By the end of March, UN forces once more at the 38th parallel. April 3rd, 1951, Ridgeway meets with MacArthur to explain his plan, which is to use air and artillery support to inflict maximum casualties on the enemy. Accordingly, he would advance to a series of phase lines named Kansas, Wyoming, and Utah. This would bring him to the vicinity, to the vicinity, oh my gosh, this would bring him to the vicinity there we go, of Pyongyang. But Ridgway didn't know something. For months, President Truman had been growing increasingly annoyed with MacArthur, who didn't agree with Truman's idea of a limited war. Yeah, they really didn't like each other. A little over a week earlier, on March 24th, MacArthur had issued a public statement taunting the Chinese, offering to meet to negotiate, to meet to negotiate an end to the war, and saying as an implied threat that if the UN extended the war to the Chinese homeland, the Chinese government would, you know, certainly collapse. Truman didn't fucking care for that. Not nearly as into uh, war as MacArthur was. On April 11th, 1951, Truman, having reached the opinion that MacArthur's independence amounted to insubordination, relieved the general of all his commands and recalled him to the United States. MacArthur pissed. He quickly rode his jet ski through the Panama Canal and up to the East Coast. Never stopped to eat, sleep, drink water, shit, or piss. 
rode his jet ski up onto a beach near Washington, D.C., sprinted towards the White House, hurdled the outer fence, kicked the door in, Jean-Claude Van Damme Truman out of the Oval Office window, dragged him to the nearest sidewalk after killing all the Secret Service agents by catching the bullets they shot at him and throwing them back at them, then made a weeping, begging Truman kiss the curb shortly before stomping on his skull while also shooting him in the fucking chest, then sprinting back to his jet ski, returning to North Korea. John Bon Jovi would later document a lot of this in song, writing, Shot through the heart and you're to blame. You give love a bad name. Uh, I played my part and you play your game. You give love a bad name. I actually thought I was going to stop after that first part and then decided to continue. (laughs) John Bon Jovi has a lot of, you know what? Next time I go to karaoke, I think it's going to be Bon Jovi. I wish all of that would have happened, but of course it didn't. In reality, MacArthur was out. He'd be welcomed as a hero stateside, though. There'd be public outcry as well as to how and why he was fired. And more on MacArthur quite a bit later. <laughs> he had some he had some uh, pretty crazy plans about what he wanted to do in North Korea that didn't come out until uh, after the war. Uh, Ridgeway was elevated to full general and assumed command of all United Nations forces in Korea now. He brought in Lieutenant James or Lieutenant General James A. Van Fleet to command the Eighth Army. Like Ridgeway, Van Fleet had earned wide respect as a division and corps commander against the Germans in 1944 and 45. But before Van Fleet could reform the South Korean Army and redeploy his own divisions, the Chinese struck April 22nd. Some 250,000 men in 27 divisions hit the UN line along a 40-mile front north of Seoul. The battered ROK uh, okay, uh, two corps gave way u.s divisions peeled back to protect their flanks and rear until van fleet could commit five more u.s and korean divisions and a british brigade to halt the chinese armies on april 28th by that time the chinese army down seventy thousand people and failed to capture seoul man they took heavy losses mao refused to accept Peng's report that the chinese forces could no longer hold the initiative and he ordered the second phase of the offensive which began may 16th lasted another bloody week Once again, U.S. and friends, uh, air power and heavy artillery stiffened the resistance. Once again, the U.N. forces crossed the 38th parallel in pursuit of a battered, but not quite beaten, Chinese expeditionary force. The Air Force launched Operation Strangle. Man, they got some great operation names. Uh, While the 8th Army Offensive continued into June with uh, the 1st and 9th Corps advancing towards Line, Wyoming. By June of 1951, the Korean War had reached another critical point. Chinese North Korean armies, despite having suffered some half a million casualties since November, just since November, had still managed to grow to 1.2 million soldiers. Like with Stalin, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sung, they were just willing to throw, you know, a nearly endless amount of men at the enemy. If they lost 10 times the men as whoever they were fighting, they didn't give a fuck as long as they still won the war. A win was a win. A United Nations command had also taken its fair share of casualties, more than 100,000 since the Chinese intervention at the end of 1950. By May of 1951, while U.S. ground troops numbered 256,000 and the ROKA added another 500,000, uh, other allied contingents only added an extra 28,000. Overall, a lot of troops, but over 400,000 less soldiers than the North. However, U.N. forces controlled the skies, had hundreds and hundreds more planes of all kinds. UN command forces flew about 700,000 sorties during the war compared to the North flying about 90,000. UN forces dropped 635,000 tons of bombs, including over 32,000 tons of napalm on Korea 
mostly North Korea. By comparison, the U.S. dropped 500,000 tons on all of Asia during the entirety of World War II, including Japan. All of this meant that the leaders of both sides had to consider the fact that peace might not be attainable through military victory. Even the U.S. Uh, National Security Council adopted a new policy that committed the U.S. to support a unified democratic Korea, but not necessarily one unified by military action and the overthrow of Kim Il-sung. But unsurprisingly, the other side, not in total agreement. In Beijing, Mao had no desire to end the war. So he approved an approach suggested by Peng and others. Hold the ground in Korea, conduct a campaign of attrition, attempt to win limited victories against small allied units through violent night attacks and infantry infiltration. The Koreans, about uh, whom this whole thing was started in the first place, interestingly, not a factor for either side. Truman and the UN, who wanted the return of the status quo, uh, were sympathetic to the idea of a negotiated settlement now. But over the summer of 1951, both sides just couldn't reach an agreement that worked for everyone. So fighting continued. In August of 51, some of the worst fighting of the war goes down in places like Heartbreak Ridge, Old Baldy, and Bloody Ridge. Far between August 18th and September 5th, Bloody Ridge marked the start of a new phase of the Korean War. Behind were the great mobile campaigns that took armies from one end of the peninsula to the other. Now both armies entrenched themselves, fought fiercely over valuable features of terrain that overlooked enemy defenses and supply routes. Bloody Ridge consisted of just three hills, 983, 940, and 773, and the connecting ridges. A maze of enemy trenches on the ridges made it appear to air observers that Bloody Ridge had been plowed. Inside the trenches connected many bunkers, which the enemy had built strong enough to withstand artillery fire and airstrikes. The larger ones sheltered as uh, as many as 60 men each. Some protected small artillery pieces or mortars. Detection of enemy positions from the ground was difficult because the hills were partially wooded and enemy soldiers had been skillful with camouflage. Beginning on the foggy morning of August 17th, 1951, it's so crazy. ROK troops launched their attack against this bloody ridge, this mountain that has been, you know, uh, te- what is it, terra terraformed into, uh, you know, just this crazy military installation. Finally, on September 3rd, even half uh, with half of the companies decimated, even after receiving replacements, UN soldiers managed to take bloody ridge and hold it. They'd use fucking flamethrowers and grenades after all other supporting weapons had failed to dislodge the enemy. Uh, 2,700 UN and perhaps as many as 15,000 communists were casualties. Almost all of them killed or wounded with few prisoners taken by either side. Uh, After UN forces withdrew from Bloody Ridge, the North Koreans set up new positions just 1,500 yards away on a seven-mile-long series of hills that quickly earned the name Heartbreak Ridge. This would be the site of a month-long battle. If anything, the communist defenses even more formidable here than on Bloody Ridge. Battles begun by a bomb, bullet, and shell inevitably finished by grenades trench knives and fists as formal military engagements degenerated into desperate hand-to-hand brawls. The American and French forces fighting here suffered over 3,700 casualties, while the North Korean and Chinese forces suffered an estimated 25,000 casualties. And a lot of that, again, like by people being like fucking stabbed to death and stuff. UN and US uh, command decided that battles like Heartbreak Ridge were not worth the high cost in blood for the relatively small amount of terrain captured. August 25th, or excuse me, October 25th, 1951, peace talks resume, with the location of them being moved to Panmunjom. At this point, nobody foresaw that the war was still less than halfway over. Men continued to fight and to die. Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals, uh, you know, units, MASH, continued to be busy. And yes, MASH, the TV show that ran from 1972 to 1983, and the movie and the book it was based off of uh, were set, or, you know, was set in the Korean War. Uh, did you know that the that MASH remains the most popular TV show of all time? 
in terms of how many viewers watched episodes as they aired. The series finale drew uh, uh, 105.97 million viewers. <laughs> Almost a, just under 106 million viewers back when only 83.3 million homes had televisions. More than 60% of America tuned in to watch that episode, you know, as it aired initially. Ironic for The Forgotten War to spawn the most successful TV show of all time. The main star of MASH, uh, playing Captain Benjamin Hawkeye Pierce, Alan Alda, Decades later in 2006, Aldo would win an Emmy for playing Arnold Vinnick, a senior Republican senator from California and a presidential nominee in the TV show The West Wing. And can you guess who appeared with Aldo in the 2006 West Wing episode, season 7, episode 15, Welcome to Wherever You Are? John Bon fucking Jovi playing himself. It's like all John Bovi, John Bon Jovi cares about is the Korean War. Lay your hands on me. Lay your hands on me. Lay your hands on me. Okay. Reconnecting to the real war now. So many of you are going to have fucking John Bon Jovi in your head for days, if not weeks. Unlike the happy-go-lucky people of the popular TV series, the real-life nurses and doctors of the Korean War face life and death situations on a daily basis. Attacks were now mostly against limited objectives and uh, you know, each gain, even for a small piece of ground, came with a terrible price tag. Even when things were at a lull, the enemy was often nearby, directly observing, meaning you had to walk warily, often crouching. By this time, a rotation system had been established for both units and individuals, the 1st Cavalry Division back in Japan, along with the 24th Infantry Regiment. Men were now constantly calculating their points towards rotation to get the fuck out of there. You know, morale getting pretty low. A soldier would earn four points for every month he would serve in close combat, rack up 36 points for a soldier or 37 for an officer, and you were eligible to go home. USO shows were now providing more and more welcome breaks, as did the service clubs that began to spring up in some of the rest uh, the rear areas. Even better were the five-day R&R trips to Japan. Few soldiers now thought about winning the war. Their aim was, you know, just to get home safely. The talks at Panmunjun were dragging along. The communists who were using the talks for propaganda purposes were in no hurry. But the side that placed little value on the worth of individual had bu- had a built-in advantage. They could keep throwing soldiers at the Americans and South Koreans, you know, virtually endlessly. To keep the pressure on the communists and deter them from overtaking South Korea, Ridgeway and Van Fleet decided that fighting should continue. Though this was perhaps militarily the right decision, it seemed to the majority of the American public wrong to take casualties when there was no plan for an all-out victory. Politically, the Korean War getting less and less popular in America. Meanwhile, negotiations still going on. After prisoner lists were exchanged, the UN proposed a voluntary exchange of POWs. But many enemy prisoners, perhaps fearing retribution for what would have been uh, seen as their weakness in battle, refused to go back to their side. Then the Chinese and North Koreans insisted that all POWs be exchanged and refused to change their position, which led to another stalemate. As the fighting went on, more and more men were lost, both on the battlefield and to North Korean POW camps. That was almost the worst fate. Uh, One of them would be Eugene Inman. After an overwhelming Chinese attack, Eugene's 2nd Infantry Division quickly retreated south. There was no time to ensure that all men were accounted for. Tragically, Eugene and many of his regiment became stranded just 50 miles south of North Korea's border with China. Then they were captured. Shortly after capture, communist troops gathered up the new prisoners, herded them into animal pens. The pens provided no shelter from 30 30 degree below zero temperatures. It's so fucking cold. Never really realized how cold Korea could get until this episode. I know I really talked up wanting to go to Korea earlier, and I do want to get that chance, but it's going to be in the summer. Uh, everyone would later remember that Chinese troops forced him to remove his outer clothing, leaving him with only his thin field jacket, a scarf, and a small cap. 
The captors led their prisoners on horrific death marches. Every evening throughout the night, uh, they would walk excruciatingly long distances with very little food and water. Civilians would throw stones at them from the side of the road. If a prisoner would collapse and not be able to continue, they would be shot, clubbed, or bayoneted to death. Men would die of starvation, exhaustion, and dehydration each and every day. These death marches continued for roughly seven months until the Chinese built more permanent camps to house prisoners along the Yalu River. At the camps, the Chinese divided the officers and commanders from the rest of the POWs. They knew there would be less chance of a POW revolt if the commanders could no longer talk to those they commanded. Then they attempted to brainwash their captors into thinking that communism was better than capitalism. Every day, the communist station Radio Beijing would crackle over loudspeakers in English denouncing the U.S. and the U.N. and other aggressors for starting the war and creating such misery. Journalists who sympathized with the communists, such as Alan, Alan Winnington of The Daily Worker and Wilfred Burchett of uh, Seychois, routinely visited the camps to speak to prisoners in their own languages about how communism was the key to a brighter and more equal future for all. Capitalism, on the other hand, made life miserable for everyday workers and soldiers like themselves. Each day, prisoners spent most of their waking hours in class learning about how the United States was not a democracy, but rather a hostile, imperialist nation. Chinese and North Korean captors removed prisoners who they thought were uh, resisting those messages and who seemed like they might revolt. Those men would endure horrific beatings, uh, would be placed in solitary confinement, denied food and water, and you know, often would die. Salvatore Conte was one of them. His captors placed him in a three and a half foot high, two foot wide, two foot wide, and five foot long wooden sweat box where he would stay roughly 22 hours a day for eight fucking months straight. Later said that the only way he endured this for so long was to constantly think that while he was laying in pain, his wife back home was laying in a nice warm bed. A bed, uh, you know, that he was able to provide with the money he made from fighting for freedom, sleeping in a land where her freedom was assured. His thoughts would later be immortalized in a song about the war that became very popular. I want to lay you down in a bed of roses For tonight I'll sleep on a bed of nails Oh, I want to be just as close as the Holy Ghost is And lay you down on a bed of roses That, of course, is from... John Bon Jovi's 1992 double platinum hit record, Keep the Faith. Come on! It's kind of fun, right? Uh, this guy's story is, of course, uh, super sad. It's just now that I've trained my mind to look for Bon Jovi associations, I, I couldn't help myself. I knew the second I came across anyone having to lay down in some uncomfortable way, I was going to try and sing that song. It is pretty crazy that one band, you know, one man was able to write so many hits about the Korean War. Back to some non-suck versus reality. Uh, despite enduring unimaginable psychological and physical torture, Salvador Conte would survive. He would stay alive by, uh, as he would say, teleporting himself somewhere else. Not like Kim Jong uh, Sung, like uh, or Kim Il Sung. He just like is a you know symbolic teleportation. He said at night he and his friends would uh, dream of home. They would keep each other alive by sharing dreams and very infrequently writing letters. Even if the letters were never sent, they at least wrote them. When Salvatore was uh, finally released, he sought out Daily Worker reporter Winston Burchett, whose pro-communist articles he had been forced to read in the camps. When asked why he wanted to talk to the man, Salvatore replied, I want to slap him in the face. Yeah, I bet. Salvatore and Eugene were uh, two of the lucky ones. Both men would live long lives and talk about their experiences decades later. An astonishing 38% of U.S. prisoners not so lucky and would die in captivity. May of 1952, Lieutenant General Mark W. Clark. Oh, Mark Clark. 
How unfortunate. Uh, replaced Ridgeway as Commander-in-Chief of the, US, of the United Nations Command. Ridgeway moved on to U.S. Chief of Staff of the Army. The 56-year-old Clark had been the youngest four-star general in the U.S. Army during World War II. He inherited a frustrating mission, waging a war of limited, limited objectives with no clear end in sight. A major ground defensive was not an option, according to higher-ups. So that left an air campaign, which quickly became an even, more, even more intense than it was. The Navy and the Air Force, flying from South Korean airfields or off carriers, continued to inflict heavy damage as they attacked key targets like hydroelectric plants. They would help the UN forces maintain air superiority right throughout the conflict, but ground conflict continued with heavy losses at isolated battlefields across the country. Places with names like Porkchop, Jane Russell, Whitehorse, and Pikes Peak. Meanwhile, the truce talks still drag on at Panmunjom. August of 1952, the U.S. Marines capture Hill 122, east of Panmunjom, give it the memorable nickname of Bunker Hill. Wasn't easy. That summer, the Marines would patrol each night, setting out from the center of the company. Being sneaky was of paramount importance. But to really hold the Jamestown line, uh, what they needed was bunkers, places they could stay for future fighting. So Marine engineers and truck drivers and some 500 members of the Korean Service Corps cut trees, shaped timbers, and hauled rough-hewn beams some 50 miles to the sector held by the 1st Marine Division. The Marines set up each standard bunker in a hole 12 feet square, 7 foot deep, excavated using shovels with no uh, aid from earth-moving machinery, doing the shit by hand. Once the timbers were in place, some of them shaped uh, from tree trunks 8 inches in diameter, and the basic structure finished, the Marines would cover the roof, some 4 feet of timbers, with another 3 or 4 feet of earth, rock, and sandbags. If carefully built, the structure could withstand a direct hit from a 105 millimeter, uh, millimeter shell besides affording protection against shrapnel from time-fused shells that would explode overhead. Just a night. All of this is such a nightmare. A living bunker provided sleeping quarters and the fighting bunker would, uh, you know, feature ports for machine guns and rifles. Bunker construction would fail, however, to keep pace with plans or achieve the desired degree of protection. Fatigue contributed to shortcomings since the infantrymen, who uh, by day would dig the holes and manhandle timber into place, had to also guard against attack at night. In the end, the Marine bunkers, as well as those manned by American soldiers, did not measure up to the standards of the Chinese who provided as much as 35 feet of overhead cover for frontline positions. They were very good at digging, which usually were linked by tunnels rather than trenches. Meanwhile, more fighting went up uh, on other hills like Siberia, a.k.a. Hill 58A. The 1st Marines called for airstrikes and artillery fire on Chinese forces. Four Grumman F-9F jets, uh, or Grumman F-9F jets from the 1st Marine aircraft wing dropped napalm and 500-pound bombs. Uh, Air Force F-80 jets dropped 1,000-pounders, and a platoon from Company A, 1st Battalion, the Regimental Reserve of the 1st Marines, immediately stormed the hill with the support of a platoon from the 2nd Battalion's Company E. The Chinese again cut loose with mortars and artillery, an estimated 5,000 rounds, but could not stop the assault. While UNC 90mm weapons hammered Hill 110, flame-throwing tanks climbed Siberia, using bursts of flame to light their way while also demoralizing the defenders and sometimes burning them alive and they gained the crest before doubling back towards marine lines. And a tank with a flamethrower, psychologically, that has to be so terrifying. Control of the hill would just go back and forth, kind of like things would fight back and forth along the 38th uh, for about two months. Many marine soldiers would lose their lives. One of them was hospital corpsman John E. Kilmer, a native of Highland Park, Illinois, 22-year-old Kilmer enlisted from the, in the Navy from Texas in 1947. He was assigned to duty with 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines in Korea, and was killed on August 13th, 1952. His Medal of Honor citation reads in part, with his company engaged in defending a vitally important hill position, well forward of the main line of resistance, 
during an assault by larger concentrations of hostile troops. H.C. Kilmer repeatedly braved intense enemy mortar, artillery, and sniper fire to move from one position to another, administering aid to the wounded and expediting their evacuation. Painfully wounded himself when struck by mortar fragments while moving to the aid of a casualty, he persisted in his efforts and inched his way to the side of the stricken Marine through a hail of enemy shells falling around him. Undaunted by the devastating hostile fire, he skillfully administered first aid to his comrade, and as another mounting barrage of enemy fire shattered the immediate area, unhesitatingly shielded the wounded man with his body. That's a fucking unbelievable act of valor. Incredible sacrifice. Private First Class Robert A. Uh, Simonick, who would also be awarded the Medal of Honor, would survive this battle. And his Medal of Honor citation reads in part, While accompanying a patrol en route to occupy a combat outpost, forward or friendly lines, Private Class Simonick exhibited a high degree of courage and resolute spirit of self-sacrifice in protecting the lives of his fellow Marines. With his unit ambushed by an intense concentration of enemy mortar and small arms fire and suffering heavy casualties, he was forced to seek cover with the remaining members of the patrol in the nearby trench line. Determined to save his comrades when a hostile grenade was hurled into their midst, he unhesitatingly threw himself on the deadly missile, absorbing the shattering violence of the exploding charge in his own body and shielding his fellow Marines from serious injury or death. He miraculously survived the explosion, was retired on disability in 1953, and then would go on to live to the age of 93, uh, you know, work full-time for decades, would be called to speak numerous times about his role in the war. And his daughter would later say after his death that he didn't like public speaking and uh, that he felt he acted instinctively from his training and wasn't brave. Well, he was. Uh, nonetheless, even in the face of heavy casualties, Bunker Hill was captured. Meanwhile, talks in Pan Munjan still drag on. The communist demand for forcible repatriation of prisoners was still an issue. They didn't want any of their POWs to be given the option to choose to stay in South Korea rather than have to return to North Korea, which says so much about their country. If communism was so fucking great. Why insist that your captured soldiers have to come home, even if they don't want to? If it was great, they would just want to. Uh, in October, the UN negotiators, after making significant concessions, issued what was called their final package of proposals for prisoner exchange and ending the war. But once again... The communists were like, go fuck yourselves. At this point, General Harrison and the other UN delegates walked out of the meeting. They declared a recess until the communists were willing to uh, not be fucking motherfuckers or willing to accept one or uh, more of the UN plans or submit in writing a constructive plan of their own. December of 1952, new president-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower now visits Korea, fulfilling a campaign promise. The five-star general and former Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, yet another living legend, American war hero, told the American people that he would go to Korea, see for himself what was going on. Clear indication that the confusion about the war's aims had reached people back home. And even Eisenhower, one of America's greatest 20th century military minds, had no fucking idea what to do. Eisenhower, uh, by the way, never got credit in his day for how good of a president he was. In a 2017 survey, presidential historians ranked Eisenhower fifth on the list of the greatest presidents behind Lincoln, Washington, uh, FDR, and Teddy Roosevelt. Should suck him someday. I've, I've, I've always liked uh, what I've saw about, uh, you know, read about Eisenhower. After taking office in February of 1953, Eisenhower named Lieutenant General Maxwell D. Taylor to replace Van Fleet as 8th Army Commander. Soon after Taylor's arrival, the Chinese launched massive attacks in the, old, in the area of Old Baldy, T-Bone, and Porkchop. <laughs> Got a wide range of names, these places. Still, the fighting rages, rages on, and still it accomplishes virtually nothing. Neither side has made any real progress in a long time. General Taylor gave up Old Baldy and Porkchop, 
rather than ordering a counterattack. At this point, it made no sense to incur heavy casualties for pieces of, you know, obscure real estate. Truce talks resume in March of 1953. Following month, sick and wounded prisoners are exchanged now in Operation Little Switch. Operation Little Switch marked the first successful effort toward ending hostilities in Korea and ultimately setting in motion the Korean War armistice. Nine days earlier at Panmunjom, talks between Commander-in-Chief General Mark Clark, his name still cracks me up, uh, Premier Kim uh, Il-sung and Chinese General Peng, uh, oh my gosh, Dehuyai, uh, had led to an agreement on the commencement of troops of troop exchanges. The switch of sick and wounded prisoners of war from both sides of the conflict began April 20th and continued for 13 days. The 801st Military Air Evacuation Squadron assigned to uh, Tachi, uh, Tachikawa Air Base, sorry, I couldn't, kind of guessing, couldn't find a pronunciation guide there, uh, in Japan supported the return of American and allied prisoners of war. These were people who had been to hell and back. By necessity, many American prisoners in Chinese-run camps had collaborated with their captors. Some estimates suggest a, a third did so. But there was also a complete breakdown of order and discipline and soldiers uh, you know, would turn on one another with a strong preying on the weak and sick and there were countless instances of assault and even murder. Man, uh, let's just focus in on some Air Force POWs to examine this. The majority of the 235 airmen captured in the Korean War were held in solitary confinement for a large part of their captivity. Prisoners suffered from uh, bitter cold that I've described, uh, inadequate food, clothing, medical care, and beatings. Years later, it was revealed that some American military personnel uh, subjected to medical experimentation as well, sent to the Soviet Union to be used as human lab rats. Airmen, especially pilots, considered potential sources of intelligence and were subject to frequent psychological and physical torture. For one example, uh, Eugene Evers was a reconnaissance camera repairman stationed in Japan to check out a camera that had been malfunctioned in flight. He went on a mission with an RB-29 flight crew of the 91st Strategic Reconnaissance Squadron in July of 1952. The plane was shot down northwest of Pyongyang, North Korea, and Evers was taken prisoner. His captors did not believe that Evers, an extra man and a crew of 12, was a repairman, and they beat him severely. And then he was kept in solitary confinement in a fucking hole outside of some house, split in a hole. Eventually taken into China for interrogation and tried as a war criminal. It wouldn't be released until September of 1953. Uh, but for those who were released in April, they arrived at airfields or in conditions ranging from malnourished to beaten to close to death. They needed close attention and expert care. On board a C-124 flight to Tachikawa, Tachikawa Japan, Captain Lillian Kinkelekiel, uh, a flight nurse, accompanied some of the American prisoners of war from North Korea to Japan. Kiel was uh, one of the most decorated women in American military history, logged 175 air evacuation missions in Korea and over five, 425 combat missions. According to Kiel, every patient was unique and memorable. She said, I had to make each patient, each patient feel as though he was the only one on the plane I was caring for. This made them feel very important and they loved that. I fucking love her. Uh, raised in a convent after her father abandoned her mom and their three small children, watching those nuns tend to the sick is what drew her into nursing. She would marry Walter Keel, former Navy intelligence officer during World War II, uh, and they would raise two daughters and she would live until the age of 88. Uh, during the course of the operation, North Korea repatriated over 684 United Nations troops from Australia, Britain, Canada, Colombia, Greece, Germany, the Philippines, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, and the, and the United States. Uh, the UN returned 1,030 prisoners from China and 5,194 from North Korea. Uh, starting on August 5th and continuing over the course of five months, both sides released their remaining POWs. In June, perhaps trying to improve its geographic position, the Chinese forces launched massive attacks. Yeah, still not done fighting with around 100,000 troops. 
directed against South Korean divisions. It gained several thousand yards and then was stopped by, you know, immense artillery barrages. So pointless, more pointless attacks. July 10th, truce talks resume again. July 27th, 1953, uh, excuse me, a ceasefire finally signed. General Nam Il signed for the North Koreans and General Harrison for the UN. The armistice was thought to be a military measure, not a political one. Uh, something to stop the fighting while both sides figured out how to, you know, politically rule, uh, you know, all of Korea. And then that would never happen. The two countries still technically at war today. August 5th, 1953, Operation Big Switch begins. Over 75,000 communist prisoners return to North Korea and China, uh, hand, which uh, handed over 12,700 prisoners from the UN nation, or United Nations Command. 22,000 communist soldiers decided to seek asylum rather than return to their home countries and 88 would defect to India. <laughs> of course he did. Communism fuck sucks. But also a handful of Americans refused to be repatriated. They were part of a much larger group of prisoners whom the Chinese had dubbed progressives, soldiers who signed petitions, wrote letters, and made speeches denouncing American involvement in the war. Some went further, informing on fellow detainees, participating in propaganda films, and donning enemy uniforms. But I mean, there's immense pressure for them to do this. Although these, although these were acts, or the, oh my God, although these were acts that more than met the legal definition of treason, an offense punishable by death, most of the prisoners chose to return home and face whatever charges awaited them. For reasons that have never become clear, some of the men, a group who would become uh, known as the Turncoats, decided instead to try and make new lives for themselves in the People's Republic of China. And it didn't work out well. Over the years, most would slip back home one by one or in small groups. Uh, two, literally just two, would settle permanently in China. One of them would go missing for many years, John Dunn. Dunn was held at Camp Number 3, a camp for reactionaries run by the Chinese on the banks of the Yalu River, where the death rate was high. Uh, he was known for his efforts to take care of other sick prisoners. One Marine private, McKnight, said uh, after the war that he owed his life to Dunn for sharing food with him, giving him his blanket, taking care of him when he was sick. But something caused Dunn to become a last-minute recruit to the ranks of those who refused to return home. Under the complicated rules of the Armistice Agreement, the prisoners who did not wish to be repatriated were moved into camps inside the neutral zone at the border, where they would remain for four months, a waiting period in which those who changed their minds would be allowed to return home. Well, he didn't, he didn't change his mind. What ensued in the fall of 1953 became a kind of one-camera media circus. Even though more than 20,000 Chinese and North Korean prisoners wished to remain in the West, China focused the eyes of the world on a few Americans. Dressed in bulky, padded Chinese military jackets and caps, uh, there was 23 of them at this point, they stood before the Chinese newsreel crews giving speeches about the ill treatment they were sure to face back home after taking a stand for peace and against racism, capitalism, and McCarthyism. When someone shouted to them, do any of you want to go home? They all replied in eerie unison, almost like they'd been brainwashed through torture, no! Didn't matter that the Americans were parroting lines they had been uh, fed, including the incessant invocation of Joseph McCarthy, who was a long ways from being a household name, but most of them had left for Korea three years earlier. One of these men, John Dunn, would spend six years in Beijing uh, studying Chinese at university. While in Beijing, it appears that he met and married a woman believed to have been a Czechoslovakian diplomat. When she returned home in 1959, he went with her and was never heard from again. Assumed he went to Prague, but with his large community of American expats, someone should have seen him or heard of him. Finally, late last year, Researchers spotted Dunn's name in a massive database kept by communist secret police, which a Czech political group had put online. It listed his full name, year, place of birth, and revealed he ended up in Slovakia. Also revealed that the woman he married wasn't a diplomat, but was a student named Amelia Porsa Porobkova. 
came from a family with strong standing uh, amongst the Communist Party elite in Slovakia, which is presumably why she was sent to Beijing. Coming back home with an American husband, though, put an end to her communist ambitions. As a result, the only work she could find was a menial teaching position uh, because Dunn could not speak Slovak. He couldn't land any job. They were unable to find housing even after having four kids and lived in a single dormitory room. 1964, Dunn was finally given a job working in a brick factory. Uh, had no friends and was under constant secret police surveillance. So what a fucking bleak existence he ended up having. wonder how many times he uh, thought to himself, probably should have went home. Probably should have went home. Uh, they were eventually recruited to help with the mission spying on the Chinese embassy, given slightly better jobs, assigned a slightly less shitty flat, and then Dunn would die in poverty January 1st, 1996, and his wife would die in 2000. I would be so much softer on communism if I could find more good stories. And I look, but bleak shit like that is what I find over and over. Speaking of bleak, a lot of South Koreans never returned after the war. About 80,000 South Koreans were in North Korea when a ceasefire ended the war. Because they were not officially POWs, they weren't, uh, you know, eligible for the exchange. Many are thought to have been forced to work as laborers, re-educated, and integrated into North Korean society. Some managed to escape, but not many. Only about 80 escaped over the last several decades. Many escapees say that after the war, they were initially hopeful that South uh, Korea would secure their return. That hope withered in 1956 when the North assembled the prisoners, told them about Cabinet Order 143, which now turned them into North Korean citizens of the lowest rank. Escape from North Korea, not easy. Some would have to travel for days to the North, dart across a river, forming a border with China. Uh, Brokers would help guide them, but also charge them more than the going rate for defectors, knowing that the escapees would receive large payments after settling in the South. Uh, And once back in the South, they encountered a landscape they did not understand. Many left families in the North, only to find alienation in the South. The POWs, like others in the North, were told for decades that the South was impoverished and decrepit. And their arrival in the South revealed the extent of that deception while also dropping them into incomprehensible prosperity. I thought South Korea had lots of beggars under the bridge and everybody lived in shacks, said Lee Ju-il, 80 years old, who did not escape until 2008, right? Over 50 years later. Uh, These days, formerly detained people like Lee gathered for annual dinners in the South and some would meet for regular card games. They've been given overdue medals, overdue apologies. They've testified about the POWs they know who are still in the North. You know, most of them by this time, of course, have died. Uh, In one soldier, uh, Lee uh, Juwan's case, it was liver cancer. In July of 1953, Lee Juwan, then 21, wrote a letter to his mom. He was somewhere in the middle of the peninsula. He wrote uh, that bullets were coming down like raindrops, said he was scared. Next letter to arrive came days later from the South Korean military, described a firefight in Paju near the modern day border with the North and South, said Lee had been killed there in battle, body not recovered, but he wasn't dead. Rather, he was captured by Chinese communists, handed to the North Koreans, who detained him as a lifetime prisoner, part of a secretive program that continues today if anyone is still alive, almost 70 years after the end of the Korean War, according to South Korean officials and the most recent escapees from the North. Tens of thousands of South Korean POWs held captive in the North under the program, penned in remote areas, and kept incommunicado. After being captured by the Chinese and handed to the North, Lee went on to work for four decades in some shitty mine at the northernmost point of the peninsula near the Russian border, where it was fucking cold as shit. He married a fellow member of the so-called hostile class, one of the three political castes in North Korea, the lowest. The hostile class includes people who are considered politically unreliable. It includes descendants of people who collaborated with Japan or opposed Kim Il-sung, the state founder, uh, people whose families have escaped to South Korea, former businessmen, former religious figures, former landlords, 
and North Koreans who had high status under Japanese rule, including landowners, intellectuals, religious leaders, and aristocrats. Uh, also includes people who won't shut the fuck up about John Bon Jovi, randomly. No, uh, the hostile class estimated to include about 72% of the population, or more than 60 million people. And they don't get to live in Pyongyang. Uh, they are denied a variety of privileges. North Korea, truly, just such a dog shit disaster of a country. Lee and his hostile cl- class wife had four kids, all of whom were ridiculed by teachers and classmates, ridiculed by the teachers, for their family status. Only as Lee's health deteriorated in his final months did he tell his children for the first time the details of his earlier life. He gave one son, Lee Juwan, the names of family members in the South as well as an address, the home in which he was raised. Uh, Lee uh, Juwan, you know, the, the senior died in 1994 when he was 63, left his son with the mission though, one he would complete, even though it would take him another 15 years to defect. Two days after Lee Juwan was given his South Korean citizenship, he traveled to his family's hometown of Bowen, Relatives still own the original property, though the home had been demolished and rebuilt. During the visit, Lee learned that his family had celebrated his father's birthday every year and always set aside a rice ball for him at the New Year's feast. Decades doing that. Also discovered his father's letter from Paju, written weeks before the armistice, which a relative had saved. Can you fucking imagine? Lee learned that his dad before the war was rebellious and talkative, characteristics he stifled in the North, though passed them on to his son. Lee said, it turns out my dad was a lot like me, though he didn't show it. He was admired in North Korea because he worked hard and didn't do anything wrong, but he lived a false life. He knew one slip of the tongue could harm our whole family, so he never talked about South Korea. God, what a fun place to live. Uh, others may still be alive. The South Korean government estimated in 2013 that about 500 were still living. Man, what a fucking atrocity. Now let's head back, uh, back to the end of the war. What were we left with? As of 2021 counts, 1,789,000 Americans served in the war. As of 2022, according to the list of Wall of Remembrance in the Korean War Veterans Memorial, uh, killed soldiers numbered 36,634. As of 2014, the total number of POWs and MIAs was listed at 8,176. Total captured, 7,245. Killed in POW camps, 2,806. Returned, 4,418. Defectors, 21. Unaccounted, 931. South Korean casualties, some 1.3 million, about a million of those being civilians. And the North uh, suffered, you know, heavy losses. A North Korean census report found in Russian archives reveals that North Korea lost 20% of its population during the Korean War. Just in a couple of years, 20% of the population. According to 1953 figures of the Central Statistic Administration of the DPRK, obtained by the Center's Cold War International History Project, the country's population declined from 9.3 9.3 million over 9.3 million in 1948 to about 7.4 million in 1953. The report cites a total of 1.2 million civilian casualties for North Korea, including 282,000 killed in bombing raids and almost 800,000 that fled to the South or went missing. Casualty figures remain uh, disputed, but Western estimates commonly cite a figure of 400,000 Chinese deaths, while Chinese sources give a death toll of about 180,000. From the conflict known in China as the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea. Okay. And though the Korean War has been over for nearly 70 years, actually 70 years this summer, that doesn't mean, of course, it's really over. Officially, never technically ended. A failed 1954 peace conference in Geneva, Switzerland, yielded no peace treaty. Since the armistice is a military agreement and not a treaty between nations, the war technically continues. Korea remains divided. U.S. forces, U.N. representatives are still in South Korea with the goal of preventing another war. Man, let's hope that happens. 
Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Man, the Korean War. Like the famous Korean War historian, John Bon Jovi, once said, When you're brought into this world, they say you're born in sin. Well, at least they gave me something I didn't have to steal to have to win. Well, they tell me that I want it. Yeah, I'm a wanted man. I'm a cold in your stable. Oh, Cain was the able Mr. Catch me if you can. I'll go in down in a blaze of glory. Take me now, but know the truth. I'm going down in a blaze of glory. Lord, I never drew first, but I drew first blood. I'm no one, son. Call me young gun. Probably should have went an octave down for that one to start. Got a little tied up in the, the higher notes there. But seriously, the Korean War should have never been forgotten. What an intense war it was, and it was a war. POWs being regularly tortured, executed, men freezing to death, being burned alive on frozen hills with fucking flamethrowers coming off of tanks. So many bombs, so much napalm, so much death. Maybe one huge dicked old war hero on a jet ski. Maybe not. I wonder what the world would look like if the U.S. had won the Korean War. What if the Kims had been deposed? Would nobody be suffering under a totalitarian regime? Or is that a fantasy? Would China and the Soviet Union have turned a conflict on the Korean Peninsula into World War III? Just to make sure the capitalists, right, weren't going to uh, be, uh, you know, too close to them, knocking on their door. Who knows? It didn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen for several reasons. One, at the conclusion of World War II, most of the troops who would arrive in Korea at first had been dispatched to Japan for occupation duty. U.S. troops had suffered more than a million killed and wounded in World War II, and the American people were sick of war. And Congress had no appetite for funding the military even further. Uh, two, by early 1950, more than 80% of the 24th World War II combat veterans had been replaced by inexperienced recruits. Those experienced minds that it did have, like General Douglas MacArthur, were embroiled in personal rivalries and steadfast in their beliefs about how to win a war, even when it didn't make sense to fight that way. Uh, three, MacArthur's jet ski ran out of gas at several inopportune times, allowing him, uh, you know, not to make, or, or not allowing him, rather, to make enough of an impact with his razor boomerang. Uh, real three now, nobody really knew what the Korean War aimed to do. The objective was not consistently clear. At first, it just aimed to get the North Koreans out of the South Korean capital of Seoul, which it did. But then North Korea took Seoul back. And so South Korea took it back back. And before long, nobody really knew what the fuck they were trying to do. Perhaps if there was more of a clearer vision of Korean self-determination beforehand, the war would have ended very differently. But instead, Soviet Russia quickly mobilized to convince North Koreans that communism was the way to freedom which they bought into while the U.S. hemmed and hawed about how to get cooperation between South Koreans, U.S. occupation, dealing with pushback from Koreans who understandably wanted autonomy and the demands of Soviet Russia. Things just didn't come together for the U.S. and South Korea in the same way. We took a moderate approach and it fucked us a bit in the face of a fanatical communist war machine. Speaking of communist uh, war machine, the main reason we didn't decisively win the Korean War may be the simplest. We had more regard for human life than the communists. Well, most of us did. This makes sense in a little bit. Uh, the Chinese and Russian allies of North Korea, as well as North Korea itself, were willing to throw body after body times infinity into the war. Did not care about the lives of their own soldiers. Their soldiers were just tools to them, means to an end, nothing more, nothing less. How do you fight an enemy like that if you're not willing to be as ruthless as they are? We did have one guy who was willing to be even more ruthless, actually, but Truman pulled him out. MacArthur. Had he been left to do what he wanted to do, we might 
actually not have only won the Korean War, but scared both China and the Soviets so badly they wouldn't have dared to retaliate. Several years after being relieved of his command, in a 1954 interview, (laughs) this is so crazy to me, he stated that he wanted to drop between 30 and 40, no, sorry, 30 and 50 atomic bombs on enemy bases in North Korea. (laughs) And then there was more. After that, he wanted to lay a, basically a massive river of radioactive waste across the northern edge of North Korea to seal it off from China. Not kidding. This is not some of my bullshit. Can you fucking imagine how the world would look at America if we did that? If we dropped 30 to 50 fucking bombs, like the ones we dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki on northern Korea, and then created some kind of apocalyptic river of radioactive waste. That motherfucker had no shortage of fighting him. Victory at any cost kind of guy. Uh, One of the sources for that info is the Truman Library. And yeah, Truman hated him, but this is legit. I I wondered at first why it wasn't more common knowledge, but then I thought, "Ah, I I get why the U.S. probably would rather not have that info, you know, make it out to the press a bunch. Uh, MacArthur, man, he he was like the brand name commie fighting action figure version of the generic commie battling fighting man. Fight, 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 fighting commies with my melee sword. Stop being bad guys with a defense shield. Attack roll. 8d4 plus 10. Direct hit. Saving throw. 4d6 plus 12. Commies miss. Fight, fight. Witch, orc, tank. Commies, fight, fight, fight. Kill, kill, kill. Watch it for his pit bull dog. Bojangles, Bojangles. Whirlwind attack with the Gatlin gun. Two die, ten plus a fucking thousand. All the commie orcs are defeated. 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 Kill. Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. Sorry. About had a stroke there. Fighting man is good to hear from you again. Okay. I know this is a weird episode, but I was I'm trying to enter, entertain it up. Uh, you know, other than have it just be a, a long list of uh, battle names. Despite fighting man MacArthur not nuking North Korea into fucking oblivion, we did still win the war in a sense, I think. I hate that this war goes down as a stalemate. You know, the true victory parades weren't held. A UN force made up of mostly American troops did stop the communists from taking the southern half of the peninsula, and that is very significant. Over 51 million people live in South Korea right now. Over 51 million people not having to live in the hell on earth that is North Korea, a hellscape of almost no freedom, torture, poverty, re-education, continual oppression. That's a fucking win. Over 51 million people, not counting all the people who died between the end of the Korean War or, you know, since the ceasefire and now. So more like over 100 million people whose lives were made almost immeasurably better thanks to U.S. military intervention, U.N. military intervention. And that is a win, a big one in my book. So thank you to all the U.N. veterans of the Korean War, uh, including my grandpa, Ward Hall, Papa Ward, never stationed in Korea during the war. Uh, never saw action, but, you know, ready to go fix some planes as an aircraft mechanic if he, that would have been needed from him. Uh, this war and his veterans, definitely not forgotten to me. Uh, I hope you uh, will remember them now with all my crazy nonsense. And let's head to today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. The Korean War began on June 25th, 1950, when some 75,000 soldiers, maybe more like 100,000, uh, from the North Korean People's Army poured across the 38th parallel, the boundary between the Soviet-backed Democratic People's Republic of Korea to the north and the pro-Western Republic of Korea to the south. North Koreans would capture the capital of Seoul, but over the course of the war, the city would change hands several times, eventually ending up in the hands of South Korea. Uh, number two, initially the Americans' strategy was successful. The Incheon landing, an amphibious assault at Incheon, pushed the North Koreans out of Seoul and back to their side of the 38th parallel. 
But as American troops crossed the boundary and headed north to the Yalu River, the border between North Korea and communist China, the Chinese started to worry about protecting themselves from what they called armed aggression against Chinese territory. Um, in re- you know, reality, they were probably, uh, you know, more than happy to fight the capitalist Americans. And as the war went on, with more and more Chinese forces pouring into Korea, the fighting stalled and casualties mounted with nothing to show for them. Number three, when we look at whose fault this war really was, we can say definitively it was Japan's. Since the beginning of the 20th century, Korea had been part of the Japanese empire, colonized by a relentless policy of imperialism that squashed local culture and political representation. After World War II, it fell to the Americans and the Soviets now to decide what should be done with their enemies' imperial possessions. Number four, in July of 1951, President Truman and his new military commanders started peace talks at Panmunjom. Still, the fighting continued along the 38th parallel as negotiations stalled. Finally, after more than two years of negotiations, the adversaries signed an armistice July 27th, 1953. The agreement allowed the POWs to stay where they liked, drew a new boundary near the 38th parallel that gave South Korea an extra 1,500 square miles of territory and created a two-mile-wide demilitarized zone that still exists today. Number five, new info. The Korean War is commemorated in D.C. by the Korean War Veterans Memorial. Perhaps the most iconic feature of the memorial are the 19 stainless steel statues representing the service members who fought in the war. The statues statues are about seven feet tall among patches of juniper bushes that symbolize the rice paddies of Korea. Along the northern side of the field of statues is a curb that features an alphabetical listing of the countries that contributed troops to the United Nations efforts during the Korean War. At the apex of the triangle-shaped memorial is the Pool of Remembrance. One end of the mural wall extends into the pool area with an impactful reminder written in 10-inch silver letters, Freedom is not free. A new addition completed in 2022, the Wall of Remembrance, includes the names of 36,574 American service members and more than 7,200 members of the Korean augmentation to the U.S. Army who gave their lives defending the people of South Korea. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Korean War opening shots of the Cold War has been sucked. A uh, big thank you to Sophie Evans for her initial research today. Uh, also, big thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C. Staying late, recording, editing this episode so you can watch on YouTube in addition to listen, uh, listening. Uh, next week on Time Suck, we go uh, back to true crime with a serial killer, maybe. Or maybe just a very creepy criminal revolutionary and Civil War reenactor weirdo guy. Uh, We look into the true story that the Apple TV Plus series Blackbird was based on. Uh, Indiana native Larry Hall, Larry who appeared to all the world as a mild-mannered janitor and Civil War enthusiast, was suspected by the FBI of killing up to 40 women. Some sources say up to 50, including a college student named Trisha Rietler, whose body uh, was never found, though it was assumed that she'd been killed from the bloody clothes that were found near the spot where she disappeared. Unable to get a confession, the FBI gave another prisoner, Jimmy Keene, convicted of drug dealing, a chance at freedom if he got Larry to admit to what they were sure, what they're still sure he did. Would Jimmy use his charisma, you know, to help them elicit a confession in exchange for some time off of his sentence? He would have to do what uh, we do so often here, wade into the mind of a dirtbag. Instead of doing it on a podcast, though, he'd be doing it in person. The true story of Jimmy Keene and creepy-ass Larry Hall next week here on Time Suck. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first update is from wonderful meat sack and huge Disney dork, Andrea Stump. Uh, She writes, hey, Dan and the amazing Time Suck team. 
I'm going to skip the usual pleasantries because I'm unusually excited that I can finally blame Roy motherfucking Disney for something. My family is self-admittedly huge Disney fans. We go to Disney World every spring. So needless to say, I was screaming at my car radio when I heard you say in the Alexandria Library time suck that we didn't have any records of the books from Alexandria. I have listened to Judy Dench tell me for years on Spaceship Earth that it turns out there were copies of some of these books in the libraries of the Middle East being watched over by Arab and Jewish scholars. Call it the first backup system. No actual evidence this is right, but surely Roy Disney wouldn't lie to me, much less Judy Dench, right? So maybe we should look in the uh, Middle East for those missing wizard scrolls. Obviously, I blame that mother-killing Roy Disney for all of, uh, all of this since he actually did build Epcot. Hope that made you chuckle. Have an awesome day. No special sign-off. I have three kids. No time for that shit. Andrea. <laughs> Fair, Andrea. Uh, yeah, Roy Disney is both a murderer and a liar, but Judy Dench seems cool. Hmm. Are they hiding the wizard fireball scrolls from Alexandria at Epcot Center? Clearly, we need to infiltrate the QAnon chat rooms and trying to convince the QAnon believers uh, to plan another raid against Disney World this time. Even if they don't find anything, at the very least, it will be wildly entertaining. Thank you, Andrea. Go beat, I mean, watch those kids. Uh, From I don't want to share their name and get myself in a lot of legal trouble comes this next message. It seems that this year's Bad Magic Sticker Street Team is going very well. Looking forward to announcing a winner soon. Uh, Maybe it'll be whoever has been doing this. Somebody writes... Hi, I am writing. <laughs> Hi, I am writing for the track brochure distribution in Branson, Missouri, and the Ozarks area. We have brochure displays throughout the area and have been finding stickers placed on the wood panels of our displays that we are having to take off. I want to let someone know that they may have staff who are using our displays for this without permission. If you would like to visit with us about marketing, please feel free to reach out to me at the number below. Thanks for your help. Uh, yeah, I have a. I've yet to reply to this email. I never asked anybody to put stickers where they don't belong, but I'm pretty sure I have a legal right to find this very fucking funny. Branson, Missouri. That's where we're going to get a lot of Time Suck fans. That's that's the demographic, the Branson folks. Uh, one more concern sack. Brandon Wilson feels like I took it easy on some idiots. He writes, Dan, we uh, are we not going to talk about how idiotic people were to believe uh, these monsters, the Briley brothers, were innocent? Rape, murder, thievery, Prison riot, jailbreak, people still wanted them freed? What the actual fuck, man? Thought for sure the Suckmaster would roast those dummies. Anywho, hail Lucifina, I love you. Oh yeah, love you guys at Bad Magic too. Kiss, kiss. Brandon, I thought I, I thought I did say they're idiots. Sorry, I, I probably didn't roast them hard enough. Yeah, no, yeah, fucking idiots to protest those assholes uh, being on death row. Right? Because, you know, as you pointed out, it's like there was multiple crimes. You know, the murders, uh, far from their first crimes, uh, not Eagle Scouts with no records, not even close. And and there was evidence of the murders, a lot of evidence that they did it. They lied on the stand in their defense blatantly, numerous times, tossing out alibis that were not backed up. Uh, They were convicted in numerous trials of multiple heinous crimes and, you know, wanted to rape and kill during their death row prison escape. So yeah, get the fuck out of here protesting that. If you have time to protest, you can surely protest something so much more worthwhile than those motherfuckers not sitting in the electric chair. Big thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring us on this special segment. It's another special edition to our Time Sucker Updates. I'm going to share some advice given to me by Courtney Cope, licensed marriage family therapist and principal clinical operations manager at BetterHelp, and David Yadish, licensed therapist and senior clinical operations manager at BetterHelp answering two questions about work from our listeners today. First question, uh, 
How do you manage coworkers' unsolicited advice and opinions about your work or your personal life? To start, reflect on how your own behavior might be accidentally inviting unsolicited advice. Is there anything in your communication style that opened you up to this advice? Do you talk about your personal life at work? If you are readily sharing that information, your coworker might feel obligated to reciprocate. So be mindful of how much of your life you are sharing at work. Are you complaining about your life and then expecting others to not give advice? Also, assume positive intent. Most people, believe it or not, do have the best intentions. That said, if the advice is making you uncomfortable, you can redirect them by saying something like, thank you for that advice, but I feel like I have this under control. Anyways, did you hear about X at work this week? Or have you started watching X show? Or you can say, thank you so much for your efforts, but I prefer to handle this my way. If they still don't get this, it's likely a them problem and not a you problem. And if the advice continues, you might have to take a more direct approach and politely and calmly explain that you would rather not be told how to handle whatever they're giving you advice about. And now for the second question, how to combat burnout and depression. Man, Lindsay and I talk about this almost daily. I think most people do, especially here in the U.S., No matter who you are or what kind of load you carry, the American way is to do more, more, more. And that's not always a good thing. And I say that as someone accused by many of being a true workaholic. My first thought is to remember that, as one of my wife's besties likes to say, being busy is not a badge of honor. It is so damn hard to balance life. I like to approach the balance piece of life one day at a time. The balance is going to look different from day to day. One day might only allow for a quick 15-minute lunch outside that provides some kind of balance and peace, while another day might allow you to hit the gym at lunch and grab a healthy meal. Yet another day might not have anything to do with work. If you can have days like that, take them. Accept that each day will be different and then show yourself some grace. Burnout is not just work. It can be any aspect of your life. A way to avoid burnout is to work on maintaining a connection to yourself and your inner wisdom. It can be a cycle of being stuck, going through the motions, try to touch base with yourself. What are you looking for in life? What is your plan to achieve balance? If you don't have a plan, take a few minutes and write down where you'd like to see yourself in a year, five years, 10 years, 20, etc. What kind of balance do you want and what steps will you take to get there? Having a plan, a written plan, can really help reduce stress and anxiety because you can take it out and look it over on days when you feel especially burned out. Also, sometimes just giving yourself a few minutes of relaxation and reflection a day can go a long ways to combating burnout. All of us can find five, 10 minutes in a day to sit outside in the sun, listen to music, journal, etc. Interrupting your patterns is a great way to break the burnout cycle. Set limits or end dates to the load you are carrying if it's something you need to do. Be intentional with your time. And that wraps up this special edition of Time Sucker Updates. A big thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp, and to Courtney Cope at BetterHelp, Principal Clinical Operations Manager, and David Yaddish, Senior Clinical Operations Manager at BetterHelp. Courtney Cope and David Yaddish's input is general psychological information based on research and clinical experience. It's intended to be general and informational in nature. It does not represent or indicate an established clinical or professional relationship with those inquiring for guidance. Their feedback is in response to a written question, and therefore, there are likely unknown considerations given the limited context. Also, just because you might hear something on the show that sounds similar to what you're experiencing, beware of self-diagnosis. Diagnosis is not required to find relief, and you'll want to find a qualified professional to assess and explore diagnoses if that's important to you. 
If you or your partner are in crisis and uncertain of whether you can maintain safety, reach out for support. Crisis hotlines, local authorities have a safety plan that can be done with a therapist too. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death, time suck each week. Uh, please don't join up with communist forces this week and try and take over anything. It'll make Bojangles so angry. He just wants you to keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Lay your hands on me, lay your hands on me, lay your hands on a bed of roses. And tonight I'm going down in a blaze of glory. Take me now before the truth shot through the heart. And you're to blame, honey, you give love a bad name. This shit's going to be in my head for fucking weeks now.